everyone, What's Between the Sheets, episode number 424. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan and Bix. We got a unique show this week. In fact, in a second week in a row that we don't have a Saturday of yeah. TVs. We do actually have one clip at the end of the show from Sunday and Monday, mm. but no Saturday show during our week. So a small show. But we have a big show to talk about at the beginning of this show as, yes, our latest Patreon show has dropped at patreon.com slash between the sheets. And it's part one of our two part look at Todd Gordon's autobiography. Todd is God. So we do have a mixture of newsletter stuff in there as well, because basically, let's be honest, the newsletters are Paul Heyman's side of the story. And then we'll have Todd Gordon's side of the story come from his book on all the issues of the early days of ECW. We'll have uh, the story of ECW starting and how that came to pass uh, after the ashes of Joel Goodhart's tri-state promotion. Then we'll talk about Eddie Gilbert being brought in to be the booker for Eastern Championship Wrestling, where Paul Heyman comes along for the ride. Then we'll talk about Todd and Eddie's falling out. After Jim Crockett is involved, thanks to Paul, then we'll talk about uh, Paul being persuaded to become the booker by Todd in the aftermath of Jim Crockett's issues with the Wrestling Network. And uh, we'll get into the Wrestling Network, yes. The Wrestling Network, Wrestling Network, whatever, and then because well, he had both, yes. um, and, and then you ha- and then we get into the story in 1995 where we have uh, Todd giving up the company to Paul, and there's a lot of stuff there that you've never heard before unless you've read the book, because we've always had the Heyman side of things. Now we're getting the Todd side of things, and it rings a little bit differently than what we've heard. And uh, some new little narratives pop up out of this of why Todd and Paul fell apart. And yes, I'm not going to give anything away, anything else away. So if if you want to listen to this, $5 a month. Get you access to this and all the other shows that we've done in our seven complete years of the Patreon now at patreon.com slash twin sheets. Yes. And I do want to mention this isn't actually giving anything away, but if you remember, I think it was last year. I don't think it was this past, like, June or whatever. I think it was last year. We did a sh- show um, about, like, the changeover to HHG Corp and all the mystery around that. And there were a lot of questions we had about, like, why would Paul push out his money, Mark? Blah, 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 blah. Well, it all makes much more sense after this. Yes. We find out. And, yes. It is... Uh... Quite the story. Quite the story. Yes. Now, speaking of the Patreon, though, and we should say, too, we have part two next month as well, covering the uh, the mole, ECW mole saga with Todd, Todd's uh, Dennis Corluzzo ECW invasion of the NWA angle, and also Todd's involvement with uh, John Collins' MECW. So yeah. that's that's part two next month. But speaking of the Patreon, we have a Patreon pick this week. Oh, yes. And also, we're going to do a mailback show as well, so we'll be on the lookout for that. Yeah, more so on next that, week or so. Yeah, yeah more on that at halftime. So, um, yes, uh, Matthew Finney 
requested this show, $25, which you can do that at patreon.com slash twin sheets. And he wanted us to talk about September 20th, 2020, September 20th through the 24th of 1992. Now, yes, it is a five-day week. We know that because we have done shows sandwiching this time period, which is why you have to ask us, you know. Um, now, we haven't done shows before because I didn't want to screw up the timeline because the timeline works perfect to do 13th through 19th next year or whenever we do 13th through 19th. Mm-hmm. So it's perfect to have that week intact. We did 25th through October the 1st on show 219. So you can go to that show and listen to the uh, last couple of days of uh, the week there. Yes. But anyway, September 20th through 24th, 1992. So we got five days. We're missing a Saturday. But we got some interesting stuff to talk about. So we're missing Friday and Saturday because we have Sunday, right? Yes, yes. So we got the state of the business. And this is uh, regarding TV ratings and house show attendance. This is going to cover stuff that's the way it looks right now, as Dave has the observer. Both pro wrestling TV ratings and house show attendance most likely at all-time lows this past week in North America. The average cable rating for a weekend was set a record low of 1.72 in the weekend of the 12th through the 14th, dipped below that figure for 1.68 average over the weekend of the 19th through the 21st. In addition, while no accurate records can be used to verify this, Dave strongly suspects that pro wrestling tennis in North America was at its lowest point in decades this week. With the possible session of a WFTV tape and Brad about a towboat on Tuesday, which we received no report on how well it drew, there wasn't a show in North America during the past week that drew 3000 paid. WF ran one show per night, generally headlined by Ultimate Warrior vs. Kamala, none of which drew well. WCW shows drew between 900 and 1,500, with the exception of a slightly better crowd in Jacksonville, and there was little in the way of independent houses. From a television standpoint, it's a non-safe assumption of viewership at an all-time low this past week. But fact, the two WF cable shows, All-American and Primetime, drew 1.9 and 1.8 respectively. In reality, All-American had been doing it in this neighborhood much of the summer, while Primetime was going against a formidable competition of a strong Monday night football game, Bears versus the Giants. In the much-publicized Murphy Brown season premiere. Is this her having the baby? Gotta be, because it's during election season. Right, 1992, Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so, oh, so if it's, not, if it's not her having the baby, it's probably the Dan Quayle episode. Yeah. Imagine that. Imagine that in the social media climate, that whole deal. Oh, the incumbent vice presidential candidate shit-talking a fictional character? Yes. It's uh, it's a safe bet those numbers will increase a little this coming week. On the WCW side, things look even worse. WCW Saturday night with a strongly pushed Steiners versus Arn Anderson Bobby Eaton match only drew 1.9, while the real disaster of the week was main event, doing a 1.3, second lowest in history. A few years back, going to -to head-to-head with a Super Bowl, main event did a 1.1. Even with a Dusty, Dustin, Dustin Rose, Barry Wyndham, Nikita Cole versus Jake Snake, uh, Barbarian, Cash Jack headliner. Power Hour increased from this previous two weeks to 1.5. Of those remaining shows, in comparison to the same weekend a year ago, many of it was preempted that weekend last year. Ratings were down on average 24%. You know, overall television viewership of all TV shows during those same time slots was higher this year than last year. 
So trying to use weather or anything else as an excuse to explain the client wrestling ratings doesn't hold any water. In fact, just the opposite is true. It's this kind of trend that holds up. It's not short of disastrous for the wrestling business. Since syndicated time slots are being dropped and demoted left and right already, and wrestling overall is clearly in the midst of its deepest depression in decades. The only bright spot on the U.S. groups is that WF had a crew in Germany this past week. This is most of the seats were first-time visits. The shows, no doubt, all either sold out or came very close to doing so and did huge merchandise business. Okay, real quick. I just checked Wikipedia. Yes, it's the uh, Dan Quayle episode. It is a two-part, one-hour episode. How many viewers do you think watch that episode of Murphy Brown, Chris? 24 million. More like 44 million. It was a huge fucking deal. Because people wanted to see how this show, which is already a hit show, would deal with the actual vice president attacking the fictional character for being a single father. (laughs) Yes. That's what the whole controversy was. And also, like... Isn't the father, like, an anti-apartheid activist who refuses to be there for the baby because he he needs to be more devoted to fighting apartheid in South Africa or something? <sighs> something like that crazy was going on, yeah. So it's like she... <laughs> so, like, even just her single motherhood is not uh, your typical uh, whatever Dan Quayle would be trying to frame it as. Not that he should be anyway, but still, like, with as stupid as as stuff has gotten, I don't know if this would happen, anything like this would ever happen again. Well, there would also be no, like, zeitgeisty show like this these days. Either. Yeah, it's just crazy to think about. Yeah. Oh, she had given birth in the the season finale. Yes, because that's why it's stewed. Yes. So yeah, the season finale was 33.7 million viewers. So then they were up to 44 for the premiere, and then for the uh, second episode of the season, they were down to 30.9. And they're still doing great viewership, but this was an event. And, And TV Guide would name it number 64 on the list of TV's 100 greatest episodes. Never watched an episode of Murphy Brown in my life, so... I watched maybe one. It was, I mean, uh, granted, you're you're a few years older than me. I don't think people, even now with CBS still kind of being the old people's network in various ways, I don't think people understand how that was even worse in the 90s. It was, I mean, it's the Tiffany network. That's what, I mean, that's the nickname. You know, that they've always had. I mean, it was set up for that, but they were very successful in their in that base. Yes, but, like, if you were a kid, if you were a teenager, if you were even a young adult, the programming didn't really appeal to you. All right, so let's see. All right, so 92-93 primetime TV schedule. I'm just going okay. to see what – I'm going to see what TV uh, – what CBS was offering – to the masses. All right, so you got Sunday, of course, 60 Minutes, Mercy Road, Sunday movie. Mm-hmm. Evening Shade, Burt Reynolds, Hearts of Fire, uh, Major Dad, Murphy Brown, which Murphy Brown ended up being the fourth highest rated show 
on television in prime time mm-hmm. for the season. Love and War, Northern Exposure, which I actually did watch the Northern Exposure. Oh, well, that, okay, that's that's the exception. Northern Exposure did have Tuesday, its younger fan base. Tuesday was Rescue Nine One One, and then the Tuesday movie. Wednesday was a whole bunch of shows. They did they. They had a hard time Wednesday night. Um, they had all well kind of in the eight o'clock hour, and then nine was in the, in, heat of night. In the heat of the night and forty-eight hours. Um, Thursday was Top Cops, <laughs> Street Stories with Ed Bradley, and then not, uh, Knots Landing was for Picket Fences. So Picket Fences starts in spring '93, I guess. Golden Palace, that's the the Golden Girls spinoff. Uh, Major Dad. Brooklyn Bridge was ninety three. Designing Women, Bob Newhart show. A lot of lot of different shows there. Well, no, Bob, the follow up to the Bob Newhart show. Yeah, and then Saturday was Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman, Brooklyn Bridge, A League of Their Own, Walker Texas Ranger show uh, started up in ninety three. So CBS, I mean, you look at the top twenty five shows on television, primetime television. They have Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman at twenty three. 48 hours, 40 hours is 26, so outside. Rescue 911, Tuesday Night Movie was 14th. Evening Shade was 19th, Hearts of Fire 20th, Murphy Brown 4th, Love and War 15th, Northern Exposure 11th. Monday night's their best night. Well, you know what the big thing is? Other, su- other than Sunday, 60 minutes was number one, Mercy Road was number five. The Sunday movie was eight. And the big thing this reminded me of, though, was how much like weeknight non-scripted programming they had. Too. Movies, it's, it's, it's movies, and well, it's not all just movies, the, but also Rescue Nine One One and stuff like that. But 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 you, all the networks have movies. Yeah, that's the thing. People forget that shit. But well, also Major Dad sticks out like a sore thumb as not fitting in with the rest of the network. Yeah, so CBS was definitely a more of a drama network, you know, stuff like that at this point in time. But they were, you know, they had their shows. All right. Speaking of so, drama. Oh, my God. Let's go to World Championship Wrestling. Now, we did two weeks ago, 1992, on show 422, where we left off where Bill Watts was in negotiations with talent. He's talked to Wade Keller in the torch. Well, now he's talking to Dave Meltzer. Bill Watts, on September 21st, said all problems between himself and Brian Pillman were settled at a meeting the previous day at the Omni. No details were given. However, both sides apparently came to a compromise. Watts indicated that Pillman wouldn't be buried. Pillman was put over Brad Armstrong cleaning the TV on uh, the 21st. As soon as I got here, I told Dusty, we got to use that kid better. I'm tired of these giants who can't take any bumps. He's with us and everything's fine. We had a week or two at an impasse. He's happy. He shook hands with me. We never had what you would call a fight or argument. This is business. As far as I'm concerned, it's in the past. Watts also said that Barry Windham isn't going to be retired and indicated a new push for him. That was evident Monday night when he and Dustin Rhodes won the tag titles from Terry Gordy and Dr. Def Steve Williams. So Pillman comes to an agreement. Time to push him, which is what Watts basically said on the show that we did two weeks ago. You know? Yeah. But what was the I'm agreement? Not, <laughs> I'm not going to push a guy who I don't know – if he's willing to play ball with me or not. Pillman's obviously taking a pay cut. Well, here's the other thing, though. As we learned from the contemporaneous reporting two weeks ago, though, 
even though later on in all the Pillman profiles this gets told as Pillman being told he has to take like a pay cut on his guarantee, everything at the time, both from Dave and Wade, said that it was just t not taking the incentives that were based on being in main events and title matches regardless of how they drew. Yeah. So what do we think this is? Watts saying, you have to work with me here. What if we make it that if it draws above a certain amount, you get a bonus kind of thing? Maybe. Well, we're going to have more on that. All right, so Light Heavyweight Division put on hold. An announcement expected airs on Saturday's TBS show that, that was taped on the 21st. Watts announced that the Light Heavyweight Tournament had been talked about, won't be taking place until sometime in 1993. Saying to have a true international tournament, it would take that long to put it together. Watts said he didn't want to set a timetable this year because when he did it, he wanted to do it right. The reality is Watts didn't like the way wrestlers under 236 pounds have been talked about as light heavyweights on television constantly, and he's afraid in the fans' eyes that they've taken it to mean that they can't compete or be viably, viably programmed with the heavyweights because of that classification. If and when division returns, it's meant to be handled differently and probably have a different and probably lighter weight limit. You know what? That's not a terrible reason. He's right. 235 was always, to me, a high weight. It shouldn't have been that high. 215 at the highest. Because it made Johnny B. Bad a light heavyweight. Johnny B. Bad was not a light heavyweight. Terry Taylor was a light heavyweight. He's in the tournament. Yes. Top rope rule almost completely eliminated. Another announcement airs on TV Saturday. Watch oh, City's almost a light heavyweight division? Oh, okay. I didn't have nothing to talk to say about it. I mean, Watch it. I mean I what else is there to say? I just I still find it ridiculous that like they did this when Armstrong was working TV days later, but I it's just so stupid. But it's Watts wants to push Pillman now. But so the other Pillman, thing is, Pillman's but, on a light heavyweight no more. He yeah, wants to push him, so yeah. we got to get rid of this division to warrant my push of Brian Pillman. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is whether it was Bischoff's idea, whether it was the Wade Keller idea getting picked up. Even if WWE ended up devaluing it later on, whoever actually came up with the idea of going with cruiserweight because it doesn't actually have like a diminutive in the name was totally right. Yeah. Junior heavyweight, light heavyweight, even something like middleweight, featherweight, you know, all those things. Like. It's not going to sound right, but, you know, to everyone who's just used to there just being heavyweights. Cruiserweight, yeah, definitely works more in wrestling than it did in boxing, per se. Right. And also, I mean, the other thing, too, is, like, what they're calling a light heavyweight. I mean, a light heavyweight in boxing caps out at, what, 190? Or 175. Was yeah, it was got that 175. Was 175, yeah. Cruiserweights are 190. Yeah. So... Yeah, light heavyweight in boxing is 175. It's 205 in MMA. It's 210 in kickboxing. And here, you you know, going back in you know the 90s, you have wrestling promotions doing 235. I think Global was 237. Just yeah. Weird. Anyway, top rope rule. Top rope rule almost completely eliminated. And then that's what airs on TV Saturday. Why say he's totally rescinding the ban on the top rope moves for all weight divisions with the exception of knee drops off the top onto a prone opponent to the face and neck. This is probably how it should have been from the start, and Watson made a mistake in this ruling from the beginning. Eliminating all but the one move that allows for an eagle, a legal heel move from the top rope, which was one of the main purposes for the rule in the first place. This also, once again, allows the acrobatic top rope moves that have been the subject of much controversy ever since they have been eliminated. 
And then when Rick Rude uh, gets hurt, this comes in very handy because he did the bombs away in the ma- in the New Japan match where he won the international title back from Sting. So they were able but the to thing, use that as one of the justifications to take it away from him. But here's the thing, though, with the top rope rule that we don't talk about enough. That was the rule of Mid-South the whole time Mid-South was in existence. Yes. Although they did relax it in by UWF era, right? Because didn't Chavo do the moonsault in some some in UWF? Not off top rope. He did it off the middle rope? I think so, yeah. Okay. I could have sworn it was top rope, but if you say so. Um... But yes, what that was the Mid-South rule. And they didn't leverage it that much. And the the big time that they really do is the Loser Leaves Kamala. Town. And well, Kamala. Kamala. Kamala as well, but also the Loser Leaves Town, where they're due in 83, where it's, you know, well, it was a JYD and Olympia against, supposed to be Duggan and DiBiase, Duggan's MIA, so it's like, oh, we brought in Matt Bourne from Georgia, and this match is no DQ, so he can do his his bombs away, the top rope butt drop. And, oh, now they have this dangerous, now legal move, because it's no DQ, and blah, blah, blah. You know, that that's a time they really play it up heavily, too. And yeah, like you said, with Kamala, they, they do stuff with him doing splash off the top rope and stuff. But those are the only, the, the only real times it's really a factor off the top of my head. Watts commented heavily on the leading three-page story in the September 14th Observer, which is the one which we talked about on two weeks ago on the show. Confirming most of the information in regards to his goal is to eliminate the red ink by heavy cost-cutting and to make up a new contract he's offering. Watts explained he fully believes in incentive bonuses, but that the incentive bonuses in the current contracts were guaranteed. Therefore, he didn't agree with them. He also didn't agree with Kip Fry's steroid policy, which gave the wrestlers bonuses for complying. He said if steroids are going to be banned, then the enforcers should be by punishing those who don't conform to the guidelines. He said Fry greatly overspent for Jason Ventura, which he says is proven by the fact that Ventura came in and the TV ratings still went down, but said he's having Ventura's efforts in trying to fit in. He said Fry shouldn't have been credited with signing Jake Roberts because Fry would have never gotten him if Roberts hadn't already left Titan. <laughs> well, I mean... You gotta, the guy's got to leave for you to sign him. Watts has a hard on for Kit Fry, obviously. Uh, he confirmed he wouldn't agree to the guaranteed salary deal Roberts and Fry were negotiating, but hadn't yet been signed when he replaced Fry. After much haggling, Jake agreed to Watts' per-match deal, almost surely for $1,000 per match. But Watts, Roberts insisted on putting on a maximum on number of shows per year he worked. Watts said the different wrestlers will have different guarantees in regards to the new contracts as far as dates. Some will be given a minimum number of dates, some a maximum, and others, no guarantees in regards to dates. The only major error in the reporting of Watts' new contract structure is that Watts said a $1,000 per night wrestler who gives notice during his two-month window at the end of his contract period won't get bumped down to three fifty a night. The relocation clause is supposed to be because once new contracts are into effect, all wrestlers have to be based in Atlanta or provide for their own transportation into Atlanta. The wrestlers who live in Charlotte or elsewhere have to pay for their transportation to Atlanta for all road trips or shows in the Atlanta area and transportation home as all flights will be to and from Atlanta. Thoughts? I forget. Is this stuck with after he's gone? Because or is this just like or even though they get rid of it, it still becomes more of a thing for everyone to move to Atlanta. I don't really remember. 
I don't know. I can't say. Yeah, if the requirement stays. Um, and that... That's such a streamlining. It's like you're trying to claim these people are independent contractors. And you're saying yeah. they have to move solely so you can streamline travel? Yep. But this started before Watts, though. This started when this is a WCW, basically. It started with Crockett. Right, because there was the thing originally where, unless you lived in Charlotte, and which case you were getting an exemption, you had to move to Atlanta. So yeah, that was, it did, you're right. Yes, it did already exist. That everyone who wasn't in Charlotte had to relocate. To either Atlanta or Dallas. Eh, I don't think Dallas was in there when Turner bought the company. I think it had to be it had to be Atlanta or, or if you were already there. Sure. No, Dallas is Crockett. Oh, I didn't realize that. Wait, when was that the Crockett said everyone had to move to Charlotte or or Dallas? Well, wasn't everyone well, they, already living in Charlotte or Dallas? <laughs> well, kind of, sort of-ish. Oh, you mean as far as whoever was on the Florida or UWF rosters that was being absorbed that wasn't living in either city? That's why Dusty. That's why Dusty started being announced from Allen, Texas, because he was based out of Dallas. Yeah. So, all right. Watts said WCA plans to run two and fourteen regular house shows in nineteen ninety three, approximately sixty TV tapings, four clashes, four pay reviews, which means plans are to increase, not decrease, the number of house shows. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, he's not there to deal with it. So he confirmed all new contracts will have a time period in which the company, but not the wrestler, has the option to terminate the contract, provided the company gives the wrestler 30 days' notice in writing. And wrestlers who sign multi year deals, keep in mind this only applies to wrestlers who sign new deals from this point, not those existing on existing deals, they will come up for renewal every four months. While those on a year of the contract come up every three months. Why well, submitted this gives the wrestlers no security. The claims there's no security factor in any sports. If you want to go, if you want job security, go work in a bank. You have the choice. You can make big money or you have, can have security. There's never been a time in America when you can get both. <laughs> if you want job security, go work in a bank. <laughs> wow. Well, that would change, Bill, as time goes on. Yes, that does sound like Bill Watts. Yeah. Watts also confirmed doing away with medical coverage and contrast to call for paying wrestlers for days they missed due to work-related injuries, defending it by saying the wrestlers are independent contractors. Watts said the company workman's compensation premium was more than $400,000 this year. We're doing away with that. If they want insurance, they make enough money, they can get it on their own. <laughs> independent contractors, Bix. What an asshole. I mean... Here's the thing with that. Honestly, to me, $400,000 a year for that doesn't sound that bad. In the grand scheme of what they're paying everyone. I mean, Watts wants what they're paying everyone lower. But in the grand scheme of the pay scale, I don't think that $400,000 a year for what they have to pay in workman's comp insurance is that bad. In today's money, that's eight hundred seventy-five thousand three hundred forty-one dollars and forty-one cents. Okay. So there's your inflation calculator. All right. As far as the withholding provision in new contracts, the thousand dollar per night guys will receive seven fifty and get the remaining two fifty per night in a lump sum upon the completion of either every three or four month period, depending upon the length of their contract. Five hundred dollar guys get three fifty with one hundred fifty withheld, and three fifty guys get two fifty with one hundred withheld. 
Watson's explanation is that he considers the 750, for example, to be the base pay, and the remaining 250 as the incentive bonus. Watson said the company has had too many problems with wrestlers walking out, not doing jobs, no showing or whatever in the past. He's right about that. But what is this kabuki-ish bullshit? <laughs> yeah, it's not the way to handle it, but he's right about it. <laughs> he's right about the, the, how, they, how they were doing. Is this like the time I briefly worked for a company where, like, I was told I would eventually be getting, and I did get a higher salary, but, like, they, like my boss had to sell his bosses on me and start me at a lower rate, and then, like, after a month it would get higher? Like, is that what this is? Well, I mean, it's kind of that. Well, I mean, you know what they call that in sports? They call that a prove me contract, where you sign a lower contract if you were a guy that was a free agent and you're not getting a whole lot of bites. You're signing a, a prove me contract to prove that you're still you still can perform at a high level. That way, you, once that contract runs out, you can negotiate for a new deal. It seems like they're getting the money anyway. Huh? As far as unionization. Why I said it's awfully hard to unionize in a buyer's market. I don't give a damn if they do it or not. Most of them don't have the gumption to fall through. The only thing I've seen unions ever do is cut themselves into a piece of the pie. Dave said, obviously not a student of baseball labor negotiations. Which, by the way, is such a classic anti-union thing to say. <laughs> That's the for the high- No, but the whole thing where they pretend the union isn't made up of the people you work with. <laughs> The union getting mo- – I mean, yeah, there might be union news and stuff, but it's like the union getting money means it's going to – yeah. <laughs> as for the hiring of his son, well, I said my son's contract is the same as everyone else's. In other words, he received a certain amount per night, but he's not on the rumor $3,000 per week guaranteed salary. I already showed some guys his contract this week. Most second-generation wrestlers have either turned out to be very good or very bad for the business. Fewer in between. Was compared his son with the way Dorfman Jr. was giving a big punch from when he first broke in. In a few years, he was doing six-minute draws with Gene Kaniski and Vern Gagne, the world champions at the time, before he was at their level. Watts claimed that Dory being pushed like this ended up making him one of the all-time greats. You need youth. Eric's been wrestling since junior high school. He graduated college four years. He was starting quarterback in a major Division One program. Watts started a few games last season as a redshirt senior at University of Louisville when the first and second string quarterbacks both went out with injuries. <laughs> nice of Dave to note that. And he's just nine hours short of his masters. He's six foot five, two sixty, and he's a damn good kid. If someone wants to mess with him, they'll find he can hold his own that way as well. When Ole's kid, Brian Rogowski, who's a high school state wrestling champion in Georgia, gets out of college, we're gonna use him too. Okay. Not that we have any footage of 1963 Dory Funk Jr. We don't. I'm going to guess he was a much better wrestler from the beginning than Eric Watts was. Yes. Yes. I think it's pretty easy. I mean, honest to God, I mean, it wouldn't have happened. What they should have done was just have Eric go to the New Japan Dojo and start out as a young boy there. Yeah... They should have done something. Honestly, there should be a like if you're especially in places without a, like a developmental circuit, there should be some equivalent to that in American wrestling. I just don't know how. They should anime smoke send him smoke him out? And... Well, they don't have a deal yet. Yeah, but it's Bill Watts. Yeah. You don't think that you, you don't think that Jim Cornette would have took Eric Watts on? 
just use them as a prelim, maybe even put them under a mask, whatever. Yeah. Watts also commented on what his reaction was in regard to Jim Crocker Jr. in the show a few weeks back in Dallas, where it was reported that Watts wanted Crocker to buy a ticket and banned him from going to the dressing room. It was total bullshit. I said he didn't need to be in the dressing room because he's not an active part of the company. We invited him to attend the matches, and I told Jim Barnett to make sure there was a ticket for him. We don't let anyone who isn't with the company in the dressing room. Now, don't you need disruptive influences in the dressing room? If he wants to meet with talent, let him do it somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Watts also said the company's making plans for another tour of England. He sent Jim Barnett to England just this past week to get the ball rolling. Oh, well, I wish I could see that. Watts noted that the first WCW England tour last year lost fifty grand. Mainly because WCW lost their television a few weeks before the, the tour started, which company officials believe was due to a maneuvers from Titan Sports. Huh, that's interesting. Which I, I, I wonder because from the stuff I found, they were doing good ratings when Worldwide was airing on ITV. So I wonder what actually did happen that got them canceled. <laughs> and, you know, it's not an extensive one. WWF did have a history with ITV because they did sell them those, you know, handful of shows for World of Sport for its last couple of years. So it's like they had connections there. I wish I could have seen Jim Z in England. It was ITV that, that, that Worldwide was on, right? It wasn't Channel 4, I don't think. Uh, I guess. Mm. All right, uh, as we continue, the main gist of everything in regards to keeping and acquiring talent is this. Watts' attitude is actually quite simple. He believes wrestling is right now because there are a few options to make money, a buyer's market. Which server side, promoters or wrestlers, that offers the contract is going to dictate the terms. There's no such thing as fair. When you talk about fair and contract negotiations, you're being unrealistic. And these are the terms on the table, plain and simple. If a guy can get a better deal, he should take it. Most will, that is, if they can get a better deal. If he can't, these are the terms, and that's what the wrestling pool W7 would be drawn from. Well into the future, when we look back, we can judge whether or not this worked. If most of the major talent stays and works for a small overall monetary package, and turns out that both money and benefits, then by and large, it worked. Even if the interest level in the product doesn't increase. If most leads, but business stays the same, then it still worked, because the company lost less money. If most leaves and business goes down, then it didn't. Brian Gagne had the same ideas, and he's longer in business. But so did Jerry Jarrett. In fact, even more so. And while his product isn't anywhere close to as popular as it was years ago, he certainly hasn't lost the kind of money TBS has during the same time period. Watts, in his own mind, can rationalize all his moves. Some of the rationalizations are very good. A few seem to be stretching things. The idea that guaranteed contracts create lazy athletes isn't borne out by examples in almost every other team sport, and most of which top stars are on multi-year guarantees. Pro football being an exception because the club has the option each year to cut a player with a long-term contract and not pay him for the rest of his contract. But even then, they aren't put under a three-month option. It's a one-season option once they make the team. Well, that's about to change, Dave. Because <laughs> the new bargain, the new uh, CBA kicks in a year later. And forget about sports. Let's talk about wrestling. WCBA guaranteed income contracts. So does All Japan. So does New Japan. WF doesn't. Which wrestlers on a nightly basis as a group work harder and put out more effort in the ring? The company environment and pride level of the athlete are the main ingredients for the motivation level of any wrestler. Not contract stipulations. Let's take a specific example everyone's well aware of. Ric Flair. During 1989, and in fact through December 91, Flair received a guaranteed income whether he had a good match or a top spot on the card or not. 
He also worked in an environment for a management group that largely blamed him for their own inability of creating more negative working environments. Since that time, Flair hasn't received a guaranteed income. His income depends upon his spot in the card and how well the card draws. He's worked for a manager group that's put on put no blame on him for his own failings. Which time period on nightly basis did Flair work the hardest and the best matches? The reason? Some professional pride anyone who's going to be one of the best in the business is going to have no matter what their contract stipulates. Some, some though, aren't that way, Dave. You know? That's just the way it is. Some... Some of these guys that if they don't feel like they be getting paid what they're going to get paid, we're not going to put the effort out there. Hmm. Realistically, as we've seen, like you needed to move towards some kind of guarantee, and WWE had the right idea, so to speak, and like you have a minimum guarantee, and then blah blah blah. But like, but even then, that's now like that's almost kind of become draconian, and they're the only ones who do anything like that for the most part. Like, I think AEW wrestlers get merch bonuses above their guarantee, but that's it. Um, like, also, I'm not, not going to make the AEW merch joke. Well, venue merch is the problem, not all merch. But, um, you, you, but you can't just base policy around, like, the outliers who are going to, quote-unquote, milk an injury, you know? Yeah. That can't dictate your policy. They exist. But also, who's to say, what is milking an injury? Yeah. In the first place. Especially with everyone probably coming back too soon anyway, most of the time, you know? Yeah. You should have the main U.S. competition, though, if offering to your contracts because the contract guarantees so little money, twenty two fifty per year. A wrestler can be not booked at any time. So there's no real guarantee of security. Although WF has a history has shown has been pretty good about keeping wrestlers around. So although security isn't guaranteed by past performance, there's some measure of security and quite a bit for the guys on top, unless you're a short-term gimmick like a Sapphire. Watts analogized the fact that CNN anchor men and women had the same three-month, four-month option period where they could be replaced to use as the precedent for his contract stipulations. But CNN anchors also have a lot stronger benefits package and expenses taken care of when they go out on the road. Dave's not sure how the jobs of anchormen and wrestlers are comparable, except both appear on television a lot. <laughs> Dave doesn't know of any major team sport besides wrestling, which the athletes have to pay for their own on-the-job injuries. Plus, don't get paid until they return to action from such injuries, nor have to cover their own road expenses. Granted, individual sport athletes like golfers, tennis players, bowlers, radio cowboys, etc. operate under similar circumstances, but they also have the option of picking and choosing their dates and are true independent contractors. The top ones have many individual corporate sponsors who give them a base guaranteed income as well. Wrestling in this country has a tradition operating in the manner Watts is proposing. But in the past, conditions and incomes for all athletes are far more primitive than they are today. The problems and tension are guaranteed when the benefit gains are attempted to be taken away. I mean, yeah, WD's right about the individual sport deal, but again, they have a lot of sponsors that's footing the bill for a lot of their stuff too. So... There's that. Yes, in a way wrestling doesn't at the time. No. There's nothing wrong anyway with scaling back salaries if the company's income doesn't justify it and the company's directions take costs down. It has to be done. If it has to be done, well, to the day of the reckoning is going to come. Anyone with a brain should have been able to figure out that years ago. Why to a TBS this long to make the most important decision one way or another just shows how little they understood this business. It was just a question of when 
it will make the company less competitive when it comes to dealing with the top talent. But that we said we have to choose the direction, decide what it really is, where it could be a successful company at whatever level it aspires to be. Most of the changes are part of the direction change of a company that inevitably will become the unofficial top feeder system for the WWF. But it's a company that couldn't come close to balancing its books any other way. Some of the other cutbacks are harder to justify as being fair. But as Watts has said, no doubt we'll say many more times in the future. Life is a fair. A statement that could pretty well justify anything. They're lucky that this is going on at a time that wrestling is not hot. And there, I mean, there's not hot free agents bouncing back and forth either, you know? Yeah. And the young guys that are coming up on the scene, they're not going to work for no big time money. So you can get them on the cheap. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, this is part of business. Um, you know, it sucks that it's like that, but it's part of business right now. My job, we are having to cut payroll because our payroll is not meeting the percentage that needs to be hitting because we're not doing the business to get to the percentage that is comfortable with ownership and for various reasons. So we're having to massage the payroll down to try to meet the number that we need to be hitting. And um, another store in the company has had to do the same. But it's the way it is. And we just gave, we gave raises out a few months ago. So that plays a role in it as well. When you give raises out to everybody, then that's going to drive up the payroll. And, you know, when you, when you have ownership, that's, it's kind of still thinking that, you know, the way it used to be as far as paying, (laughs) you know, you can't do that no more. You just can't. And that's the situation with a small business. You know, we're a a four-store company. We're a small business. Our owner's 78 years old. And, you know, he's not one of these guys that lives extravagantly either. That's another thing. So it's different if the guy's kind of extravagant money spender. This guy's pretty tight with money. And that's why he's kind of like what he is. You know, this is a corporate structure right here that WCW is dealing with and, and Turner Broadcasting. But the fact is, is that they're losing money and Bill Watts is hearing it from his bosses that we got to change. We got to do something here. After the guy that he replaced was going out and spending more money, you know? Right. And he, and Kip Fry is like the antithesis of what Bill Watts is as far as how to run a wrestling promotion. I, you know what's also interesting about this, but I can't even pin down necessarily how it, how it would directly affect it. We also need to keep in mind that for the previous five years, Bill Watts had been doing multi-level marketing. Yeah, but it's not a wrestling business. No, I know, but I'm just saying like it's interesting to look at. In the context of all this, I wonder how much of his point of view coming out of this 
is thinking about how he had just spent five years in a pyramid scheme. Yeah, and also Bill Watts, I mean, the rest of the business when Bill Watts was in charge, was everybody still got paid off the, off the house and gates, you know? Yeah, they had contracts, but like I said before, I mean, I think that all started with Ken Mantell. The UWF guarantee contract. Exactly. So it's just wrestling's changing. It's evolving. And Watts is not there yet evolving with it. All right, let's get to the rest of the WWE section here. Rick Steiner underwent surgery on the 21st in Birmingham for a badly torn pectoral major muscle. The peg was apparently ripped from the sternum, which injured that finished many world-class bench pressers. No word on how the injury took place other than it took place during the IWGB tag title defense in Yokohama against Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sasaki on the 23rd. Uh, so not the 21st, it was the 28th, actually, but the injury took place during our week, so there's that. Um, I got my Monday sick mixed up. Uh, the only word on the recovery period was that it was expected to be six weeks, but most likely to be advanced for the duration of his contract, which expires about 90 days. This in reality means there's a better than ever chance that he's wrestled his last match for WCW. During the interim, Scott Steiner wrestles the singles. It's ironic a major injury like this would take place amidst controversy over Bill Watts limiting the medical insurance and work compensation benefits to the wrestlers who sign new contracts. Under the new system, if the Steiners were to sign the offer on the table to them, and this injury was taking place early next year, not only would Rick Stein have to pay for both the operation and rehab, but he also wouldn't be getting paid until he returns to the ring. Yeah, I wonder why they jumped. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very obvious. Especially since Scott just had to deal with a similar thing a year earlier. I know, Jesus Christ, I'm telling you. That is insane. And I think it comes up again when they actually jump. I almost said dumb. Jesus. Uh, I think it comes up, like, explicitly that was one of the main reasons they jumped. Yeah. Well, excuse me. They had these injury histories and they didn't feel like they could risk being in a company that wasn't going to pay for that. No. Dustin Rhodes and Barry Wyndham won both the NWA and WCW tag titles from Dr. Deffin. Steve Williams and Terry Gordy on September 21st center stage. A 20 minutes, two and a half star match, which anyway win the pinning Gordy after Dustin Bulldog. Dot was spinning everywhere like he was Haruka Egan during the match. Match will air on October 3rd on TBS. It was Doc and Gordy's last match before leaving on a four week Japan tour. Then they'll only be back for three weeks before heading back for the tag tournament. Taping itself for the next two Saturday shows that have been, been the hottest at some time, parts because they needed a jolt to move the record low ratings in the other direction. Putting it together was made harder by the fact that Steiner and Steve Austin were never out to Japan, while Sting and Steamboat were both on vacation. WNLs and Doc and Gordon against the Steiners on TV's coming weekend for Havoc, but obviously that won't take place in that form. All right, we get Dustin and Barry Wyndham win the championships. Yes, in a match that it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I feel like most people who would see it these days would probably rate it much higher than two and a half stars. Yeah, um, but this is simply the catalyst for D- uh, Barry going to turn on Dustin. Yes, you know that's the thing. So yeah, he's going. He wins the title. They win the title together, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's advancing the story more than anything else. Yeah, because when is the clash? November, where they lose mm-hmm. titles? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Omni, September 20th, 8, 1600, announced. 
the Omni is an 18,000 seat building. Mm-hmm. Aaron Watson and Mark Canterbury, three quarters of a star. Brad Armstrong and Marcus Bagel, Brian Pillman and Scotty Flamingo, two stars. Dustin Rose at Diamond Dallas Page, over Diamond Dallas Page, two stars. The Steiners over Greg Valentine, Dick Slater, dud. Barbarian over Barry Windham, dud. Sticking the key over Jake and Super Invader, one star. Doc and Gordy over Bar- Bobby Norton Anderson, two and a half stars. Tag title match. Ron Simmons retained WCW title over Rick Rude, two stars. I mean, no Sting. Well, Sting's here. Um, Steamboat's not. But you look at this lineup, and it's, you know, it's. It looks okay, but it goes to show there's Ron Simmons has no angle. Mm-hmm. Your tag title match is a battle of heel teams. Um, Sting and Jake is a hot program, but it's a tag match here with Super Invader involved. Yes. Barry Wynn and Barbarian, there's nothing there. Steiners, Graham Valentine Slater, nothing there. Nothing there, no, nothing on the card. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Nothing there. So, yeah. Rich Slinger received a try at the center stage tables on the 21st and looked pretty good from what Dave was told. He did of course get he, hired. Well, because Gordy's leaving. Yeah. If that was the seventh game of the World Series this year, once again, go head-to-head with Halloween Havoc. There wasn't. First to Rose and Havoc were priced at $50, which Dave gets to be the case at the all-pay-per-view events. Might as well try. Speaking of Halloween Havoc... Todd Gordon is putting together a variety club party for handicapped children at the Boris Building in Philadelphia on October 24th. The two-and-a-half-hour party will include mandatory appearances by every wrestler on the Havoc card, plus Bruno San Martino, who's honorary chairman, and other guests with photos and autographs for a tax-deductible $25 contribution. Hmm. Todd Gordon in the Variety Club. More on that at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Yes, actually. Not this event, but yes. Um... I've been to the Bourse. My fifth grade uh, big trip at the end of the year was to Philly. And at the, like at the end of the day, everyone convened because the, I don't know what else it was then because it's a fairly big building. If you look it up now, it says it's just the, like the big food court that they have. They call it their, they call it a food hall, but that, yeah, that was the thing. Like they had this huge food court, but there were other things in the building. It wasn't like the, it. I, I, if you look it up, you will understand what I'm trying to say because it's a few stories tall. But I, I'm trying to envision what was different then, or were they holding this benefit in a food court or what? Yeah. Oh. Bruno and Tony Schiavone will be the hosts of Havoc on pay-per-view while Ross and Ventura will call the action. Yes, that does happen. Oh, I should mention, too, just since it's not here. Uh, there end up be also being two bus trips from New York, competing bus trips to Havoc. One run by John Rezzi and one run by Vince Russo. <laughs> they should have had a race. Let's see who get there first. A bus race? Yes. Bro, bro, floor it. Floor it. <laughs> can't, can't lose to a Rezzi. And to close, new policy starting this review and, all, and on all clashes from this point forward. All matches on the show will be significant matches. No throwaways on big shows. Total contrast from Titan, which is generally a few significant matches and mainly throwaways. 
Okay, let's see if this comes to pass. No. <laughs> well, I'm looking. I'm, I just want to. I want to take a look at what actually our lineups end up being coming out of this. All right. So I mean, so let's look at the first clash of the champions. Well, Havoc comes first. I know, but but clashes on this list. Okay. I was gonna pull up first, Havoc first, but whatever. All right. So your first clash: Pillman over Armstrong in 25 seconds. Yes. Eric wants Kinsuke Saki over Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton. Mm-hmm. Sky Flamingo over Jamie Bad in the boxing match. Ron Simmons, Tuco Scorpio in a handicap match over Tony Alice, Barbarian, and Cactus Jack. Mm-hmm. Medusa going to a five minute draw with Paulie dangerously. And then Sting over Rude as King of Cable. And then Douglas and Steam win a tag toss from Wyndham and Dustin. Compared to some other clashes, yes. But I guess Havoc was. Zank, Johnny Gunn, and Shane Douglas over Arn Eaton and Hayes. Steamboat over Pillman, Vader over Koloff, Wyndham and Rhodes going to 30 minute draw with the team of Steve Williams and Steve Williams. Rude over Ch- Chono by DQ, Simmons over Barbarian, Sting over Jake, and the coal miners close spin the wheel make the deal. So I mean I kinda get what he's saying. So I mean the previous clash was what, the tag tournament? Yeah. And then what was the last clash before that? Um, that would be that, was, that would be the January show. Yeah, yeah, that had throwaway matches. Good show, but oh, the the the, air, the Jim Hurd era clash had tons of throwaway matches. That's what I was about to say. This was more of a Jim Hurd horrible super show problem. Not just the clashes, pay per views too. Yes. So it's, I, I kind of get what he's saying, but it's not something that had been really a problem in a while. At least not to the degree they're acting like it is. All right, let's go international now. And we start in the land of the rising sun, Japan. New Japan Pro Wrestling, all Japan's off. New Japan had a major show this past Wednesday night. September 23rd, Yokohama Arena before a set of 17,010 fans. With ringside at $160, the gate was probably in the $1.5 million range. The show was set up in a bit... Major disappointment. Well, there were some upset finishes in the other car. The Samoans, Kokina and Samu, Yokozuna, just weeks before you become Yokozuna, put over Super Strong Machine and Tatsushi Goto in surprise since both were WF bound. So this was their final match in Japan for the foreseeable future. In the following match, El Samurai Coach Kanemoto beat Jushin Liger and Hiroshi Yamamoto, Tenzan, and it was a surprise finish with Samurai Pen and Liger and not Yamamoto with Hurricanrana. Similar to the Frankensteiner, as Dave says. After that, Scott Norton earned a shot down the GB World Heavyweight title on October 18th by pinning Tony Hallman 915 with a power slam. The final match before intermission saw the skinheads, Shirokoshinaka, King Okamura, Akasuseido, and Masashi Yagi, all with now either crew cuts or shaved bald heads, also their formal name, the Anti Player Association. Meet Riki Choshu, Tatsumi Fujinami, Takuki Izuka, and Osamu Kido when Kusunaka pinned Kido. Before the match started, war wrestlers Masao Orihara and Tatsumi Kitahara wearing suits and ties came to ringside and sat in the front row with tickets challenging the skinheads. After the card, Choshu, Orihara, and Kitahara held a surprise press conference, basically putting the next step in the angle, which presumably led to Choshu and Tidru at the Tokyo Dome on January the 4th. Expected Tenro make a surprise appearance, probably at the November Sumo Hall card, to set that up. After intermission came the great Muta versus Shinyashimoto, 
for the IWGB World Heavyweight title, which would have been terrible with no heat. Moon worked as a total heel to the point where he didn't show his skill, which was a negative for the crowd. In fact, it was so overboard that they barely locked up for the first eight minutes. Muda ended up using a lead pipe from underneath the ring, putting his knee pad came off the top rope with five knee drops in a row on Hashimoto, then pinned him with a moonsault, 14-50 die. There was no reaction at all to the finish. Next match should have been the best one on the show, with the Steiner retaining the IWGP Tag Toss, beating Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Saki in 1915, when Scott pins Kensuke with the Frankensteiner. And this is where Rick hurt himself, as we talked about earlier in the show. And the main event saw Masahiro Chono against stunning Steve Austin for the NWA World Heavyweight title. About five minutes into the spot where Austin reversed Tombstone Pile Driver and gave Chono the Tombstone. Austin took the bump wrong, and Chono's head was in the wrong place or something, but Chono was injured and couldn't do much the rest of the match. It turned out to be a major disappointment for the main event on a big show, with Chono win by submission with the STF 1508. It was thought that Chono suffered either a jammed neck or a pinched nerve in his neck from the accident in the ring. It was the last night of the tour, so he didn't have another match until October the 8th. It was expected he'd be in the ring for the tag tournament, and his U.S. tour doesn't appear to be in any jeopardy. All right, the results of this show, Battle Hold Arena, Yokama Arena, Osama Nishimura with Satoshi Kojima, Hiro Saito or Black Cat, Superstar Machine, Tatsushi Goto over Kokina and Samu, Samurai Kanamoto over Yamoto and Liger, Norton over Hame, Anti-Player Association over uh, the New Japan guys, Kido, Kido Toshi, Izuka, and Fujinami, Steiners over Hase and Sasaki, Chun over Austin, Muda over Hashimoto. Okay, so two things real quick before we get into it more, because I don't want to forget. Um, there's no citations, but at least according to the High Asian Gun uh, Wikipedia article, they are not officially the uh, either Anti-Players Alliance, Anti-Wrestlers Alliance, wh- however you translate it, uh, Han Senchukai Dome until 93, and not officially High Asian Gun until after the war feud. Yes. Okay. So, so skin was skinheads ever actually a name, or was it just a nickname that some fans gave them? I guess, but the APA was kind of born from the war feud, so which is now getting started. So, right, but the war feud lasts a long time. Too. I know, but this is where it's. I mean, if you look at like other things. Right, so it says they become APA during the war feud, and then after the war feud, they're Heisei Shingon, is what it says. Yes, yes. Um, The other thing, of course, is Chano's neck is fucked. Yeah. Um, You know, when people made the connection for years, there was the urban legend that Austin's concern about taking that pile driver from Owen Hart in that specific way was because he had hurt Chono the same way and knew it was dangerous as a result and he had all these regrets and blah 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 and he knew from personal experience that it was a problem (sighs) finally Austin gets asked about it when he was on uh, Michael Chavello's show on Access TV about a decade ago maybe a little more, I forget exactly when it was Chavello asks him about it and Austin says like honest to god I had no idea Chono was hurt. You know, in Japan, they kayfabe you about a lot of shit. And so it wasn't on his mind with the Owen thing. He never heard about it until people made the connection later on. And, you know, he turned to the camera and basically, you know, said, like, because he genuinely didn't know and hadn't been back to Japan or whatever. Like, he looked into the camera and personally apologized to Chono for hurting him. 
Yeah. I mean, which... Once you know, though, that Austin was not begging Owen not to do it because of the Chono thing, the whole coincidence there just gets weirder. That pile driver variation is not common. You know? No. No. The, you know, the sit down from the tombstone setup. And, and traditional tombstone setup. You know, where they're in tombstone position, you know, with the one leg on each side of your head. Not the over-the-shoulder, you know, uh, Fire Thunder driver, Rikisi driver, etc. Because they're higher up for that, so they're much safer. For this, if you're not going to your knees, you're going to your butt, the head runs the risk of being too low. And that's what happened to both Austin and Shona. But the coincidence is just so weird. I mean, maybe not. I mean, I guess that it's Austin is what's weird. That two people got hurt on it in high-profile matches is not, because it seems like it's just a bad idea for a move. Um, but that Austin was involved in both of them is freaky. Chono's back on October the 8th. He doesn't miss any during time. So that's the thing. Like, if you're Austin, no one tells you that Chono's hurt. You see Chono a few weeks later at Halloween Havoc... No, Chono doesn't say anything there. I, I believe what Austin's saying, that he had no idea. Yeah, Chono doesn't take any time off at all. When is the first time he takes any time off? Uh, I mean, it looks like he's in tag, a lot of tags on this, on, you know, when he comes back. Uh, his <laughs> 90, 94 takes the month of November off. So basically, right, wait, is that... There's no gaps. Yeah, yeah, 94 is when he takes the month of November off. 98, he takes October through January, 99 off. When was the heel turn? Uh, 94. When in 94? Uh, that's when the heel turn happens, is... Right is around that, that month off? Okay. Yes. So, yeah, so, and then... He must have been hurting bad and needed the time off and realized, okay, I need to change my style. I mean, and if anything, I, I think you can make an argument he was a better worker as heel limited Chono. Uh, I've been watching all this Chono lately, and he was a damn amazing babyface worker. <laughs> Man, he was good. But the injury, you could tell it affected him. Yes. He wasn't the same guy as he was before this match. It just made him so and, much and, of a and, smarter and, worker, though. And they knew that too because it, you know, they, after the, he loses the IWA title, they start phasing him down a little bit. So he's not pushed as high as he was. Like he, I mean, he does some more. He does more jobs, and, and after after losing the NWA title, so yeah, he's not emphasized as much as he was in '92. When he was, uh, I mean, extremely over and, you know, very highly pushed. I mean, that's the thing you see. Up, I mean, where I'm at now and watching stuff, I mean, Hashimoto is Hashimoto, but he's the lowest of the three Musketeers. Yeah. Or status. And I'm in March of 93, March, April 93. He's the lowest in status at this point in time. Mudo's highest. And uh, Chono's in the middle, and then Hashimoto's the lowest. Hmm. 
Oh yeah. Like the higher, I mean, higher profile matches are going to Mudo and Chono. They've got the big singles titles. You know, they've had tag titles. Hashimoto had some titles earlier, but he just, I don't know. He, he just wasn't what he, what he was going to become. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Not yet. Also, what a disaster that Rick Steiner and Chono get injured in back-to-back matches like that, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think the Steiner's match is on New Japan World? Maybe. Well, I got, I've, I've watched all this stuff in, in recently, and uh, it's not it's not nearly as dire as Dave makes it sound. I mean, the, it's pretty, I mean, the crowd's pretty hot, and you know, the matches are good. So, I mean, I've watched this entire show, basically, because it, it was on Classics. Oh, wait, no, I think I'm thinking of a different match, actually. And the Muda, Muda Hashimoto match is a, it's a Muda match. The Muda gimmick is not Keiji Muda. Okay, so let me ask you this, then, because I, I thought about bringing this up with at least, you know, what other like good matches Chono has around this time. I haven't seen a ton from this period where it's Muta as IWGP champion, but... He does have, you know, when he has the title versus title match with Chono at the Dome, where he wins the NWA title, he doesn't really work it as much as, like, New Japan heel Muda. So, no. was that more of an exception, or was there other... Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. So, by and large, even during that title reign, he's still working as, as, still... Ja- as New Japan Muda. Uh, yeah, but it's just... It's, it's just... It's different. I mean, you get the you know more blood and stuff like that, and more weapons. But yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting though. In '93, when he goes back to being Keiji Muto regularly, the fans are way more into him again as Keiji Muto than the worst great Muto. Yeah. So I think the fans preferred him as Muto instead of Muta in Japan. So there's that as well. Yeah, makes sense. And looking at New Japan World, okay, Chono Austin's definitely up. Not sure if anything else is, though. Now, Muda's also the greatest 18 club champion. Oh, good lord. Here, and um, he returned it to New Japan after this show. Muto did, not Muta. Muto said he wanted to concentrate on defending the more prestigious IWGP title. Oh, God, the Greatest 18 Club title. Which, that's the title that Inoki uh, had, had made for Inoki when uh, when he was retiring in 1990 to signify his Greatest 18 opponents. Yes. Let's see, can Which you remember who the Greatest 18 were? All 18? Okay, how about this? The uh, I, mean, I was going to say all, just the foreigners, but it's mostly foreigners, so I'll just read it all, okay? Um, well, I mean, Johnny Valentine, Andre the Giant. Yes. Luthez. Yes. Nick Botwinkle. Yes. Um, Dorflint Jr.? Surprisingly, no. Oh, it was Billy Robinson. Uh, yes. Uh, Tyre G. Singh. Initially, yes. Later, replaced by Dusty. <laughs> when Tiger G Sing goes back to all Japan, I guess. Um, Jack Briscoe? No. I'm trying to remember who all was at the Noki thing, because I've watched that. Um, 
No, it wasn't a retirement thing. It was the 30th anniversary. Show. 30th anniversary, yeah, not retirement. 30th anniversary of uh, Nokia's debut. Um, I can't remember the rest. Okay, so your full list is Luthez, Carl Gotch, Nick Bachman. Carl Gotch. Johnny Powers, I was surprised you didn't Johnny play. Powers, yeah. Johnny Valentine, Andre the Giant, Stan Hansen, Wilm Ruska, here with the nickname of Wim Ruska, uh, Billy Robinson, Hiro Matsuda, Bob Backlund, Vern Gagne, Strong Kobayashi, Hulk Hogan, Muhammad Ali, Siji Sakaguchi. Oh, it includes Anoki, Anoki, and Sing or Dusty. It's weird. It's a weird Anoki ego deal. And it was also, and it was using the old World Martial Arts Championship belt too. Was the other thing? Yeah. Just a, like I said, a weird Anoki flex. All right, there's talk on press conference in Tokyo Sports of an Inter Anoki George Foreman match for the Tokyo Dome January the fourth. But in reality, that's close to impossibility. And that's something he kept trying to for years will into reality for years. Yeah, originally. In North Korea, the North Korea show was announced as Anoki versus Foreman. And that was when George was heavyweight champion. Yes. I don't think they ever actually had a deal. But... No. <laughs> right, it's North Korean state media. I don't think you can really uh, believe anything there. Anoki got some mainstream U.S. media publicity since the Japanese sent military units part of the peacekeeping forces to Cambodia last week. And politician Mr. Anoki was part of the Japanese crew that landed. Mr. Anoki. Alright, none official Wouldn't new on the Wouldn't that be Hulk his heel name? Uh, yes. None of the official new on the Hulk Hogan front. No deal has been cut, but supposedly they've agreed to everything except merchandising percentage for Hogan debuted on the January 4th Dome show. Hogan apparently had, about eight weeks ago, suffered a pretty serious neck injury. Similar to the one Paul Lorndorf had. Which is one of the reasons why he's lost so much muscle size and tone since he can't work out. Hogan also has a charity gig for Hurricane Andrew victims coming up in Miami in a deal sponsored by Gloria Stefan, a Miami sound machine. Yeah, you never hear about the Hogan neck injury here and how that affected him. Yeah? Because it's always about his hip. All on his back and oh, the leg yeah. injuries. Yeah. Um, How long had had there been no Miami sound machine by September 1992? Uh, about four years. <laughs> Because they just dropped the whole, they dropped that party anyway. You know, it just became just Gloria Stefan. The band was always there. Oh, so it was always it was the just, same band. Yeah, it's all the same band. <laughs> it just became Gloria Stefan. Okay. Yeah, just Gloria Stefan. I don't think I realized that. I, th- I thought her, it was her a... husband. Her husband was the leader of the band, Emilio. So yeah. okay, so if she were to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, would it be her? Would it be Miami Sound Machine? Or it'd be her. But Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I mean, <laughs> they well, got their own. Uh, well, no, they, t- they took out the trash this week, though. They got their own problems right now. Finally got rid of Yon Winter, stupid ass. Well, they, so. they yeah, I mean, oh, that's been happening a lot lately with nonprofits uh, having to get rid of the guy who founded it. But um, actually, wait, is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a nonprofit, technically? I would hope so. <sighs> um, who knows? But I got a I got a buddy of mine who he just he scoffs at the actual existence of, of a rock and roll hall of fame. He says a hall of, a hall of fame is not rock and roll. 
Rock, I mean, that's not what a rock and roll, the definition of rock and roll would be, is to have a Hall of Fame for yourself. Because yeah. rock and roll is supposed to be, you know, this image of, you know, against, you know, normal deals or whatever, you know, kind of a counterculture-ish type of thing. You're rebelling against the traditions. But here's your Hall of Fame. <laughs> Okay, so I'm looking at Wikipedia. Miami Sound Machine was an American band of Latin-influenced music that had featured the vocals of Cuban-born recording artist Gloria Estefan, uh, established in 1975 by Emilio Estefan Jr. The band was originally known as the Miami Latin Boys before becoming Miami Sound Machine in 1977. Number of albums and a string of hit singles until 89... Uh, 85 album Primitive Love credited the band for his follow-up album Let It Loose in 87 placed Gloria Estefan at the forefront from 1988 yes. to 1989 the latter album was also repackaged blah, 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 blah. Um, in 1989 the group's name ceased being included on the CD or album products as Estefan continued as a solo artist but then she had a wreck oh god I forgot about that where she almost died. I never forget her making her return. At, I think it was the American Music Awards or the Grammys. It, like she, because it was like a, I don't know if it was a surprise deal, but it was the first time she performed since the wreck, and just people just giving her a fucking standing ovation and and all this shit. It was a pretty big thing at the time. I hadn't thought about that in forever. She had to put have like a metal rod put in her back and everything, right? Yes. Yes. And they, and they originally thought that she would never perform again. She came back. Originally, Gloria Fajardo. Yes. Oh, so she was, she was a member from the beginning. It's just the marketing, and they it was always them together, but the marketing just went from it being Miami Sound Machine to Gloria Stefan. Well, that's when they started getting big is when they pushed her to the forefront. Bad you boys. Know? Yeah. So. Oh, that yeah, that album. I mean, that that's their first big primitive love was their their breakout, and uh, you know, and getting get on MTV and all that stuff. Yeah, and then they just exploded from there. They were not an overnight sensation, put that way. Nope. They've been around for a minute. So there's your Gloria Stefan Miami Sound Machine uh, history lesson. Yes, thanks, Dave. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> wasn't expecting to have that but you never know where we get on this show so wait oh, when, I, when so when dave Meltzer talks about going to see pat benatar do you think he talked about seeing going to see pat benatar or going to see pat benatar and neil giraldo <laughs> it's pat benatar because that's how it was always promoted but now it is promoted as pat benatar and neil giraldo <laughs> which i mean i didn't realize until the hall of fame induction that like i knew she he was a key member of the band and her husband and everything. I did not know he was like co-songwriter on everything and yes. all that until it's kind of like Cindy Lauper and Dave Wolf. Only they stayed together the whole time. Together, yes. All right. The hottest next program seems to be War New Japan. Well, New Japan only wants to use Tatsumi Hara, Masaru Hara, and Tinder as far as the angle. This thing against New Japan storyline and basically the savior of war. Which is headed for financial problems when the current money runs out. And they just started. Just like just started. There seems to be no interest in Yoshiro Asai, who went to the New Japan training camp many years ago and quit, then moved to Mexico. Well, they use him 
but he's not a focal point in the feud. He's used mainly in junior heavyweight stuff, but the feud, Orihara is part was more part of it than Dragon is. Yeah, the only the only match with Ultimo that's really like treated as part of the war feud is the tag with him and Orihara against Liger and Samurai in war. Yes. In yes. like October, November? Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise he's mostly like he's a babyface in New Japan. Babyface, babyface. Well, I mean he just or just not working much. Um The feud the the first guy that really is uh has the, a big match in the feud is Takashi Shikawa. Mm. And then he's like the table setter for everything else. And they and and then everybody's used. I mean you got Fuyuki, who gets major heel heat on these fan shows. And these fan fans hated that son of a bitch. Um, Kitahara, um, Tenru, Ashurahara, Kabuki. I mean, Kabuki, Kabuki's a huge fan. Uh, Ashurahara, um, you know, those guys, man. I mean, they're, they're a key part of, the, of that early part of the war feud. And then you start getting the like, super strong machine mixing up with them joining the war side which i haven't got to that just yet and i still he's still a raging staff right now and i'm watching but um but yeah i mean it's a it's an interesting feud and especially uh in the early days tenru tenru is over into the news fan fans but they don't boo him really mm. they boo the other war guys a lot more than they boo tenru which is interesting to watch. Yeah. Well, we have more war and related to talk about anyway. I'm trying to look for that last mess match. The match I just watched that was really fucking good. Um, that I want to recommend to people. Where the fuck is it at? Um, it was a multi-man match. It's at uh, at Sumo Hall, February sixteenth, ninety three. Fuck, where's that? Is it here? a New Japan match or a war match? It's a New Japan show. It's a New Japan match. Um, but anyway, as I look for that, New Japan booker Joe Daigo. Oh, here it is. Two out of three falls. Tetsuya Fujinami, Hiroshi Hase, Takuyuki Izuka, Samukido, and Riki Choshu against Hiromichi Fuyuki, Tanuki Nichiro, Ashurahara, Takashi Shikawa, and Koki Kitahara. Hell of a fucking match. All right. New Japan Booker Tokyo Joe Daigo met recently with Sid Yudi, although no talk at all about him coming in. Well, what the fuck you meet him for? <laughs> Just saying hello? Yeah, I don't think Sid's going to Calgary or Tokyo Joe's going to Memphis just for fun. Obviously, Sid doesn't go to New Japan, but still, yeah. He had been there previously, though. Yeah, yeah of course, in 89. Vicious, Vicious Warrior. War- yeah. So, yeah. All right, war. While no announcement has been made because of war's financial situation, they'll be bringing in no more major WF names after the October tour when Owen Hart and Coco Ware are scheduled. Okay. Energy. So I pulled up cage match. So we can get an idea. And I wish there was more tape of this stuff, too, because... Like, there was eventually, like, that Masked Wrestlers in War DVDs and stuff that came out that had, like, Owen versus Ultimo. 
But there's other stuff on here that looks interesting, like Owen Hart versus Javier Cruz. You know, yeah. Owen Hart versus Nobukazu Hirai. And so, so that tour ends. Then on the November tour, your foreigners, including both WWF and non, are uh, Guerrero del Futuro, Espectra de Ultratumba, King Haku, the Berserker, and Double Trouble, Valentoni Puccio. Yeah. So you still More have a WWF presence, kind of. I mean, Berserker absolutely is. Haku at this point is not really WWF anymore, but it's kind of considered WWF. And I would think that the Puccios are also there via WWF. But yeah. Alright, uh, let's go to now. Yes, this will give us more insight into the money stuff. Yeah, from two weeks ago. According to the interview that the Conor Brothers gave in a non-wrestling magazine, the folding of the SWS and the War Now talent split was all stemming from Hachiro Tanaka wanting to get out of the wrestling business, and they used Yoshiaki Yatsu as the fall guy. Takano said that since Tanaka lost so much money with SWS, he wanted to get out of wrestling but needed to create a story to save face while doing so. They claimed that Tanaka met with Yatsu, who plotted with those opposed to Tenru, mainly the ex-All Japan wrestlers in the group, consisting of the Takano brothers, Noki Sano, and the current now wrestlers. Yatsu took all the heat from the marks for the split-up of the groups and the folding of SWS, then retired from wrestling. Yatsu has, still filed, has since filed suit against Tanaka since he signed a five-year contract. Tanaka gave Ward $906,000 for startup costs and one-year operational costs and gave now $320,000. According to the Decanos, the wrestlers who signed now contracts all had it stipulated that they could never say anything bad publicly about either Tanaka or Magane Super Opticals, Tanaka's company. But those I mean, Takanos and uh, but they had had they signed with now though, or did they not sign, and that's why they're able to quit? I guess they hadn't signed, and that's why they're the ones who were talking. Yeah, and with the Takano brothers having quit now, which is headed by Kazuo Sakurada, Kanonagasaki is president, we'll be pushing Koji and Ricky as their top star, which just shows how weak the group really is. Don't be surprised to see now and Wing join forces in 1993. This was such a weird promotion. Well, so it was weird altogether because of yeah, what we're talking about here. We, I mean, Yatsu basically having to go into exile for a while because of this shit. This is a weird story. Yeah, and. Now, hadn't now launched a little earlier, though, or wasn't that originally the idea that SWS would keep going, but with the now guys separated that had heat or something? But they, in practice, that's not what happened because they started in August. It's Yeah, it's a weird story that I wish we knew really more of. Yeah. And then so they ran like a couple one off shows. And then their first tour begins October 26th, the Korokin, for a show with foreign talent of Skullvon Crush, Manny Fernandez, Alex Porto, and the Ebony Experience. Well, everybody from Dallas, except for Skullvon Crush. Yeah, that's, I mean, you get why Sakurada is booking Dallas guys, because he had been living there. But how did Skullvon Crush get booked? I got hooked up with somebody. 
oh, Johnny Rods uh, ends up working a tour. Well, that, may be, that, may be one, that may be where that came from then. Yeah, I'm curious how that hookup would have happened initially, but yeah, Bob Wharton Jr., who else ends up working there? Oh, JBL. So, such a weird promotion, though. Like, again, like, it's existing solely to settle, like, beefs? Or, like, just, like, just to, as, like, a concession to the guys who won't go with Tenru? Like, that's how it feels. And that was kind of the story in the newsletters. So, just strange. (laughs) I find it, found a show headlined by Ishinriki going over Rock and Rebel. That's a match I would like to see. Knowing how Ishinriki quote-unquote worked with people in now, that's a match I would love to see. Yeah. I am sure he beat the ever-loving shit out of that guy. Probably so. Alright, um... Let's talk about Wing. Let's go to Wing. Wing ran Amura Citizen Gym on September 24th in front of 2135 as the Winger beat Ryo Miyake. Gypsy Joe went to a five-minute draw with Yuki Okanomura in an exhibition match. The Iceman, Ricky Santana, beat Masaru Toy. Yuki Okanomura beat Headhunter B. Headhunter A beat Jason the Terrible. And then Miguel Perez Jr. and Kim Duck won a Texas Tornado match over Crash Terminator, Hugh Morris, and Mr. Pogo. It's a Wing show. Yes. It's a Let's Wing show without any luchadors or without any of the Southern guys or anything like that. UWFI, and then Kitakata won the UWFI World Heavyweight title on September 20, excuse me, September 21st in Osaka, Osaka Professional Gym, beating Gary Albright by submission with a reverse cross-arm lot in 2025. Much of the releases surrounding this match came from the fact that Lutez, Danny Hodge, and Billy Robinson were brought in as judges in case he went to time limit. Takata won Thez's old NWA World Title Belt, which was put up as the prize. All right, uh, on the show, we have results. We have the Junior League match. Yoshiro Takayaba beat Todd Burton. And then another Junior League match here. Mitsu Kanahara went to a 15-minute draw with Mark Silver. You know, Tetsuo Nakano over Masuda Kagihara. Mark Fleming over Yuko Miyato. Kyoshi Tamura over Steve. Do it to it, Cox. Kazuya Yamazaki over Yoji Amjo, and Takata over Albright. And it's noted here that UWFI has had some discussions about debuting in the U.S. with a live show in Billings, Montana, which is Albright's original hometown, although that's far from definite. That does not happen. If only it did. <laughs> UWFI in Billings, Montana would have been something. I mean, if he was able to establish enough of a presence, like, there's a way you can do it. Those Fujiwara Gumi shows... That uh, Bart Vale promoted in Florida did well. Yeah, but it's also Florida. <laughs> I mean, this is Billings, Montana. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the lovely sound of the car alarm. There it goes. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is, a, I mean, big match. Takata winning. Lutez's belt. Lutez there to give it to him. You know, a big deal for everybody involved. UWFI really starting to, you know, get their momentum going around this time. Yes, because this is when the grandstand challenges pick up, too. Yeah. Because there was the whole thing, particularly where I forget if he did it on his own or someone in New Japan had him do it without really thinking about it. But someone had Chono issue a challenge to the other world champions. 
Yeah. Which led to Luthez, like, showing up at their offices or... Was it their offices or a Chono hotel room? I think it was at New Japan's offices, banging on the door and screaming that UWFI was answering the challenge. <laughs> and Chono was his guy, so... That's another yeah, thing too. I did. I think that led to some heat, didn't it? Probably. But anyway, and also we should we should know too. Like, I don't know who else even came out of that place, but in the UWFI era, Mark Fleming is running uh, the Luthez School of Wrestling in Virginia. Oh yeah, he was a big deal. You know, in the Japanese magazines this time, they would go. Um, they would you know if I would send guys to the school. Yeah. That's where Koji that's where Koji Katao trained. You know, he wouldn't sit by UWFI. But that's where Koji Katao trained. He was Koji Katao and Yoshiro Takayama were there at the same time. Training. So yeah, that was a big deal. All right, let's go to the Joshi side of things. L O P W. We'll talk about them. They ran a Cork and all September twenty fourth, which was about thirteen hundred. They did an interesting gimmick in a main event where Harley Saido, Shinobu Kandori Faced off against Norio Toteno and Futagami, Mikiko Futagami. Kadori caught Toteno in the chicken wig, and the refs thought the match was 10:38, but Toteno claimed she never had submitted. They ruled that was the case and had an immediate rematch, with Toteno seemed winning after 15 more minutes. All right, results: you kept Yukari Osawa and Michiko Nakashima over Rumi Yasuda and Mizuki Endo. Eagle Sawai over Miki Honda. Harley Slade over Mami Kanemura. Rumi Kazama over Utako Uzumi. Shinobu Kandori and Honosito over Norio Tateno and Miki Kurakami, and then Tateno Furukami beating Kandori and Saito in the rematch. Hmm. A rare gimmick, you know, in Japan with a restart. So, different deal there. You didn't normally see. Yeah. Um, it just, it's also just interesting, like, you look, especially having them as the only Josie results this week. Like, you look at LPW, and it's, like, this weird kind of, like, outlier in that it... I mean, they have a couple existing names, you know, the Jumping Bomb Angels. But, you know, it's mainly, like, it's Kandori and what, like, horror and, like, I guess the, you know, the younger wrestlers were just, like, rookies from the J- the original JWP Dojo that went with her instead of new JWP, right? Basically. So they have, they have the weakest base of the women's promotions but because they have a couple names and Kandori is so great I guess it, it's sustainable somehow yeah alright well let's go to Mexico now we'll start off with CMLL no AAA results during our week in fact nothing for AAA during our week uh, Rena Calcea, Blue Damon Jr. King Haku and Ryder Luzco Jr. Emilio Chavez Jr., Lafayette, and Sangre Chicano by his qualification when, when Emilio fouled King Haku. And then Best of Savai retained his CML middleweight title against Love Machine Art Bar, who's just about to be in AAA. So there's that. Then they ran a, a, a show to Rimeco that day uh, on the 20th for Arcanon de la Muerte and Godetta de la Muerte of Akata Kunli Jr. and Talisman Jr. Idol de Sarotario, Supremo, and Kung Fu over El Jalisco, Katakunli, and Platino. Aaron Grundy, Mike Shaw, Norman McIsane, Grand Kabuki, Great Kabuki, and Negro Casas sure. teamed up to beat Brazo Oro El Brazo Mascara Magica. 
which at this time may still be Eddie, who hasn't jumped yet. Uh, Eddie I don't think Eddie's jumped yet, so yeah. Yeah. And then uh, still the Trio Styles match. Los Infernales en Mese Uno, Pero Tomogana Satanico won the titles from Los Intocables. Hakemate Masacre en Pero. Santanico got the win two days after losing his hair. So, nice little uh, payback for him, getting some belts. Then we have another show that day at Pista Rio Revolucion. Olimpico and Olympus over El Acma and Ribacanero. El Moro and Gran Pacho over Billy Incognito and Panico. Cadaver del Tratumbo, Ilo de Gladiador in Septiembre Negro Jr. over Agala de Plata, El Hocón and Tureno. Which is noted here that Hakon is also listed in AAA, so this could be a typo. Then we have Mono Negro, Triton, and Ultimo Dragon. Over Medico, Assassino Jr., Titan, and Lucy's Plus. And then Mascara, Contra Mascara, Hakon Negro, Defeat Sombra, Poblana. With help from Gato Mantini, the Ruda referee. Sombra Poblana unmasses Juan Eladio Ferreira's Cruz, who debuted in 1980. Good bloody batch. Then we have uh, the Tuesday Coliseo show on the 22nd. El Mestizo and Torver, not Torberg, but Torver, over Dick Angelo Jr. and Pegaso. Guerrero de la Muerte in September in Negro Jr. over Cotton Lee Jr. and Talisman Jr. La Diabolica Maria del Angel and Tania over La Serenita, Lady Apache and Sociamara. Brazo de Oro of Brazo del Dandy over Gran Kabuki, Negro Casas and Sangre Chicana. And Nepal Dante Sertain is NWA Lightweight title beating Hakimate. So there's your 1992 CMLL results for our week. And Hockey Mate's first ever single titles match. Yes. No, UWA, the feud between the Vianos and Los Cowboys, Silver King and Tejano to continue. On September 13th, when both teams were uh, Technicos, King and Tejano took Gran Hamada as their partner and won a straight falls to set up Viano 5 defending UWA heavyweight title against Tejano on the 20th. On that show, King and Tejano completed the Rudo turn as in a prelim six-man, as King and Viano won were partners with Transformer, the former Kendo, against three Rudos, and King turned on his partners. In the main event, Silver King interfered getting Tejano DQ'd, and they beat on Viano 5 unmercifully until Viano 4, who had been out of action in Mexico because of a shoulder injury, suffered the hands of uh, King and Tejano to start a few, but in reality, he was on tour of Japan, reappeared to make the save. However, King and Tejano stretching him out again. Most of the house shows this coming week have King and Tejano and The King headlining against all three Vianos. All right, results of the 20th at Torreo, Cuatro Caminos, and Nocapan. Mayflowers, Mojicano, 1 and 2, and Rudy Reña, defeated Celestial, Matemáticos, Blaster, and Rocky Santana. Crisis Star 1, Crisis Star 2, and Nel Rudo over Silver King, Transformer, Viano 1. Dos Caras and Enrique Vera and Piano Tercero over Black Power, Locals on the Con and Scorpio Jr. Signo, Negro Navarro, and PN News, Yo Baby, Yo Baby, Yo, over Kinect, Dr. Batman Jr. and The Killer, and then Viano 5 over Tejano, BDQ, to retain his UWA Highway title. What, does that make them Los Missionaries de la, de la Hip-Hop? No. Okay. No, not at all. But, uh, yeah, I kind of wish we had PN News in Mexico, but we don't. Do they so, still have uh, the TV at this point? Even I mean, it's possible, but do we, don't, we yeah. don't have video of it. And we know there's TV they did on Imavision that we don't have, because it started in 91, and I think we have maybe one show from 91. Yeah. So there is more that could theoretically be out there, and 
I mean, Roy Lucher's been digging stuff up lately, so who knows? Yeah, you never know. All right, what we do know is halftime, although uh, <laughs> big difference between the first and half of the show, but it is what it is. So it's halftime. So after some great 1992 commercial, we'll pivot to the halftime segment where we'll talk about our Patreon show again. We'll uh, talk about the streaming network, all that stuff, hit the plugs. Then we'll come back and go back to the United States where we'll have uh, Jim Cornette very upset at uh, what happened at the WFTV tapings. And uh, we have a new unified heavyweight champion in Memphis. We have news on Big D, Colorado Championship Wrestling results, and lots more after the break. We'll be right back. Listen, she really sings. I love her long red hair. Look in your fins, you don't get too far. Her fin changes color and water. Eric dreams of Ariel singing, singing pretty there by the sea. Now you can be part of her world. Singing Ariel with color change fin. Eric sold separately. Ariel, Disney's The Little Mermaid. Keep your eye on it, Tiger. Bring out the Tiger in you. Winners practice hard and eat right. Like the sweet crunch of Kellogg's Frosted Flakes as part of this complete breakfast. Show me you're a Tiger. Show what you can do. Come on. Taste the Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. They're cool. seen Bobby you know Bobby he's like he's uh he's he's quiet and he's kind of he's kind of shy fun loving a real sport he's like the perfect angel in fact he's exactly like me except I'm a cartoon a really big cartoon be sure to watch Bobby's world Saturday morning on Fox I'm Elliot Shag, the canine cartoonist who creates Jim Henson's Dog City. Don't miss a tail-wagging minute of the fun. Saturday mornings on Fox. From Walt Disney Pictures, he's never coached. I hate hockey and I don't like kids. It was supposed to be a pep talk. They've never won. You really suck. Thank you for sharing that. But with some hard work. <laughs> a little luck. You're going to need it. And that special bond between a coach and his players. I'm going to die. They'll become a team. Emilio Estevez, the Mighty Ducks, rated PG parental guidance suggested. Hey, coach! National Sneak Preview this weekend. Now there's a game that lets you swing for the fences. New Home Run Derby. Oh, home Run. The game with big league fastballs. Big hits and Grand Slam sounds and excitement. 
Derby, new from Tiger. This is Pop Secret Pop Quiz. I'm Plato, your Pop Quiz host. Pop Quiz pops in six different colors. The big question is, what'll pop up next? Are you ready? Kate. Three. Too bad. Mike. Purple. Sorry. Ted. Blue. You guessed it. So what do I get? You get to eat it. There's no buttery. The quizzically colorful Pop Quiz, where the big question is... What'll pop up next? From Touchstone Pictures to teach his young son about sailing. Let's hear the Harvey book. Martin Harvey chose someone who's more than a captain. What happened to your eye? A shark attack, Swap. A shark ate your eye? More than a role model. You want a beer, you get your own beer. More than a hero. Hey, what happened in the music? And more than Martin can handle. Uh-oh. Kurt Russell. Martin Short. Blame! Captain Ron. Whoa, Dad's losing it. Rated PG-13. Now playing at a theater near you. Now, back to our program. All right, back. I've been told it's great in 1992 commercials as we pivot to the halftime seven of the show. We'll begin with talking about our Patreon, patreon.com slash twin sheets. And of course, we do have a new show that is out. For those of you that uh, didn't listen to the first part of the show, which I don't know how you missed it, but <laughs> we talked about it there. So, um, everybody go check that out at patreon.com slash 20 sheets. Follow us a month as we discuss part uh, two, no, part one. That's right, part one. I'm jumping ahead of myself. Part one of our two-part look at uh, Todd is God, Todd Gordon's autobiography. And uh, mainly focusing on the beginning of ECW through the period where he gave Paul Heyman complete control of the company. So uh, we'll have um, all the information there. We'll have uh, stuff in the newsletters, stuff we talked about before on the show. And we'll have, uh, which, because, you know, that represents the Paul Heyman side of the story. And then we'll have Todd and his side of the story from his book. Well, so the Eddie Gilbert side of the story, don't forget that, too. Yeah, there's that, too, Yeah, in the Eddie, Eddie era. But, uh, yeah, it's important to have, have you know, that for context. You know, we talked about it before on this show and other shows. So we have that, and then we have Todd stuff, and there's a lot of information on the Todd side of things that you never heard before. So you pro- you definitely want to be a part of this, and Five Dollars a Month gets you access to that, as we'll have part two come out at the end of October. So uh, get the access to patreoncom sheets, Seven full years of the show, so tons of audio up there. So a lot of a lot of bang for your buck there. Then the dollar month gets you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment. $25 as you pick a show for the week, like uh, Matthew Finney did for this week. Uh, if you want to do that, have two shows in mind, just in case the show that you may want us to do, your, main, your number one pick, could be something that we've talked about already, or it could be something that uh, somebody's already taken uh, the spot on the calendar. So uh, be prepared in that sense. And if you have any questions on uh, your show, then get with Pix or myself. Follow the protocol on the Patreon website to do that. And we'll try to help you out. Let us know why you want to do the show. And uh, we'll make sure everything works out uh, for you to get your show on the air. Remember the 30-day rules in effect, 10-year rules in effect, Wednesday, Tuesday, and timeline, all that good stuff. At patreon.com slash twin sheets. $50 a month gets you access to the Discord thing. No, access Discord. Gets you the, the, the uh, chance to work, uh, be on a segment of the show. And $100 gets you a chance to be in the whole show if you choose. You don't have to. It's all part of the perks. 
All that more, and don't forget the annual, uh, 16% off of your donation. So it'd be 50 40 for the uh, monthly donation. For Patreon.com. Yeah, for five dollar at patreon.com slash the sheets. Alright, Bix, who that this week is our new and or returning patrons. Just a couple as we are in that time of the month. We'd like to thank Randy Davis. Thanks, Randy. And Jordan Bragg. Thanks, Jordan. So we thank all you new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have left, come back, patrons that have been there from the beginning. And if you're not a, currently a patron and been a patron in the past, come on back and join us. If you've never been a patron, please join us Yes. at patreon.com slash twin sheets. And we should know, too, we're recording the first mailbag in a long time after we finish recording this segment. And Exactly, and you have to be a patron to be a part of the mailbag. Yes. So, uh, so yeah, that's one of the perks. You get to uh, have your question possibly answered by us on the mailbag show. We have a very long list of questions. And the mailbag so, show itself, too, is on the five Yes. Here. Yes. So, uh, yeah, if you want us to hear us talk about something, you know, join the Patreon, put your question in, patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, our streaming friends, IWTV and Fight TV, talk about what's going on with them this week. Not a ton going on. And with the IWTV, I guess I'll just start with the live stream side because outside of Wrestling Open, there's only one show this coming weekend. Which, I don't know the last time that happened. So, yeah. uh, Limitless is running their 8th uh, anniversary show on Saturday at 7.30 Eastern. Main event, Alec Price in a last man standing match against uh, Desmond Cole. Show also includes MSP versus Above the Rest, Kevin Blackwood versus Aaron Wark. Big Beef versus Matt Tremont, and more. So, fun-looking show there from one of the, I guess, relative to their prominence, one of the more unlikely indie success stories of the last several years, because... They're based out of Maine. Yeah, like, I remember, like... Not a hotbed. Yeah, when I started getting back heavier into the indies, like, six or so years ago... And I saw the state of a lot of New York promotions at the time, like the comment like people would make to me, and then I'd start relaying to other people. It's like, why does Maine have a hotter super indie scene than New York? Which I'm sure a lot of it is the commission and stuff. But I mean, Limitless never heard well, a bad word about them. They put on good here's shows. A, here's another thing too, Bix. You got to take consideration and stuff like this. There's way more things to do in New York City than there is to do in Maine. I mean, you, you got to take consideration, especially on indie, because like your your bigger metropolises, sure, sure. indie wrestling is not. I mean, that's been the problem with Atlanta. You know, you've had any promotions trying to run Atlanta and try to make Atlanta a thing, it just does not work. At downtown Atlanta proper, there's so much other stuff to do that you really have to find some type of niche to carve out for yourself to draw wrestling fans in downtown Atlanta. But it's on the other lo- hand, though, you have better Chicago the suburbs. and L.A. And, uh, better work in the suburbs. Well, okay. Chicago is a hot wrestling town. You know, it always is. L.A. proper's not, Bix. We got to go outside. You got to go outside, L.A. You got to go mean, downtown in, Los Angeles. I get what you're saying, but they're in L.A. County. 
It's it's not in downtown Los Angeles. Okay, so I'm trying to think. Of the notable Los Angeles indies of recent years, which actually run in the city of Los Angeles? A PWG does now, because the Globe, I believe, is in Los Angeles proper. The thing is, though, is they hardly ever run. Well, so, yes. I mean, no, 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 I know, but uh, P- does PCW open? And it's PWG. It's PWG. So they've already carved out that niche for themselves where they already are set. Sure, but there's also uh, Prestige runs the same venue. Um, trying to think who else. I don't remember what venue PCW Ultra runs. But and that's still... another part of it. That's another part of it, too, is... The venue, the Globe Theater in itself, is probably a draw. Maybe. You know, the, uh, that happens a lot. You know, the venue could be a draw. You know? From your from Wembley Stadium to a theater, it can be a draw. Hmm. Um, okay, PCW, at least their next show, is Wilmington, California. So not Los Angeles proper. I get what you're saying. But even if you factor in, like, Long Island and North Jersey, it's not like the scene around here had gotten that. Like, it's not, the New York scene was not operating burnout. at the level of a lot of other places. It's burnout. But anyway, we were talking about Limitless and putting over Limitless. But, so they they, they deserve their kudos, though, because they've got a good thing going. Um, as far as on-demand... Um, Wildside is up to August 02. What's the promotion? What's the promotion that runs Washington? D.C. or state? State. Defy. Defy. Yeah, Washington's had indie wrestling for you know forever and ever and ever, but it they never really had that indie that was bringing in big indie names, and so you got Defy is bringing in these big indie names, and that draws a whole new set of fans. Yeah. Well, I think part of part of it, what was going on with New York, though, too, was you had Evolve for a while, and I think people, I think there were promotions that weren't necessarily willing to bring in even the non-Evolve indie names because they felt like Evolve had that niche. So I think that was kind of complicating things for a while. Um, but anyway, so as far as, yeah. Well, think about this. What's the Phil- the Philadelphia indie scene these days? How are we defining Philadelphia? Philadelphia. As in the actual city of Philadelphia? Philadelphia, yes. Or the Philadelphia market area, including South Jersey. I'm not I'm talking about Philadelphia. As far as like running the twenty three hundred arena and place and Philadelphia. Is there anyone other than MLW running the twenty three hundred arena? No, I mean there's no, there's nothing like it was when you had CCW, Ring of Honor, XPW, 3PW, LAW. Yeah, I mean that's a scene that's basically non-existent. It isn't and no, isn't it, though. Like, like, like New York, what, but it isn't and it isn't though because you have a lot of promotions running the area, but not Philly proper yeah, for the commission and other reasons. I'm kind of Philadelphia proper. When I think Philadelphia, I think of Philadelphia. I mean, <laughs> when Mania comes around this spring, you don't. Do you really think that everyone's going to be running in the city proper? That'd be a mistake if they didn't. That's the problem. All these indie shows are running outside the fucking damn uh, main 
the town that the show's in, and it, it makes it hard for people to to travel back and forth. You know? Yeah. But if you have a show people want to see, they'll go. I mean, that's the other thing. For to, even during Mania weekend, you know, like, you know, what? Uh, there were problems at the last Mania. No, I know, but I was gonna say, and then we'll move on back to the well, IWTV wasn't, stuff. Wasn't some of the shows like an hour and fucking some away or something? Oh yeah, oh yeah. But like the example I was gonna give is, you know, how in New Orleans last time five years ago, the WWN building was out by the airport. It was it was the only one that wasn't running in New Orleans proper, and yeah, you know, ROH also was not running as close to the others, but still was in New Orleans, and. The biggest indie success of the weekend, though, was still Spring Break 2 at the WWN venue. You know, by far. So, like, people go. How many years ago? I'm not saying that necessarily applies now. It's five and a half years ago. But well, that, that, Again, well, that, what that shows is if you have something that's hot enough, then you can afford to do that. And by that time, Spring Break was a hot deal. Yeah, it's definitely a what if to me of if they were able to get a big enough venue the following year, if the pandemic doesn't happen, what kind of momentum spring break like as a show keeps up, you know? Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, back to IWTV. So yeah, Wildside on the on-demand uh, section is up to uh, basically almost through the end of August O2. So there's that. Uh, let's see. What's on that August 24th show? Uh, TNT versus Lost Boys versus the Maximos versus the Briscoes. David Young versus John Phoenix. Plus AJ Styles, Jerry Lynn, K-Crush, Malice, Sabu, and more. There's that. Uh, what else do we have here? Give me one. I want to make sure I'm not scrolling too far. Uh and then I scrolled past it again. I apologize. All right, there we go. I'll mention this because, you know, they don't have the live streams. Uh, C4's latest show went up from September 16th, Walking the Edge, for a show that includes Speedball Mike Bailey versus Myung Jae Lee, who I believe is a uh, Brandon Thurston protege. Uh, New Japan's Francesco Akira in action against James Stone. Uh, Evil Uno versus Alan Angels. Josh Alexander versus uh, McCray Martin. So, yeah, usual mix of your names, your locals, etc. on there from C4. And there's a bunch of old CZW that went up from, from excuse me, 99 in 2000. Yeah, the beginning yeah. days. Yes. Oh, and I should mention, too, actually, because I think they're doing a thing now where they put the live streams on YouTube, and then they put the archive up on IWTV. The latest uh, West Coast Pro show from September 10th is up, and that includes uh, West Coast Wrecking Crew versus Alan Angels. Although it says Alan Angles here. And uh, Kevin Blackwood. Uh, what else? I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, Kevin Knife, Vinny Massaro, Alpha Zoe, Lee Moriarty. Shouldn't Skywalker, Starboy Charlie, Brian Keith versus Francesco Akira, uh, Lucha Three Way, Iron Kid versus Aramis versus Black Taurus, uh, Takumi Aroha defending the women's title against Johnny Robbie, and uh, West Coast Pro title Titus Alexander against Dion Garcia. So, usual uh, fairly loaded West Coast Pro show from matchmaker Chris Hero. 
So that's all on IWTV. If you are not already an IWTV subscriber, go to independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPOD, and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So that's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. And you want me to do the fight transition. That's right. Um, well, I was so, going to say – well, go ahead. We'll, I'll save it for after you do fight. Go ahead. Okay. So not a ton going on this week. Fairly quiet on fight as well um, as far as what's on fight plus. And we should mention uh, Bo James's Southern States wrestling shows are premiering now on – Yes. Uh, you know, they're not live. He's not live streaming, but he's got each week a – Current show and a classics show that's going on. Yes. As part of... I forget, are they both Fight Plus or is one Fight Plus and is one free? I don't remember. But anyway, I think the classics is definitely Fight Plus. So people should check that out. Uh, Paradigm has a show on... Actually, wait, is this a show or a premiere? Because they do not do a good job distinguishing these. <sighs> I really wish they did a better job explaining all this stuff. Uh, either way, they're putting up a show on... on uh, I didn't have no problems when I dealt with it, because I, I, I understood what was live and what was not live. They're, trust me, they're not explaining it well in, in some cases. Well, because Paradigm... Well, actually, you know, wait, wait, I'm being stupid. It's probably another Paradigm show, it's just it's tape delayed. Yeah, I'm... Because Paradigm doesn't do live with Fight, but they do put it up on a, like a short delay after. So yeah, that, that's right. That's what the last show was too. So it's going up on Thursday at seven Eastern for a show that includes uh, Brass Knuckles title, uh, three stages of hell, Ron Mathis versus Bobby Beverly, Isaiah Broner versus Vincent Nothing in a UWFI rules match for the heavy hitters title, uh, Akira versus Jordan Blade. And then a series of UWFI rules matches, uh, including Max the Impaler against Austin Connolly. So, interesting show there. Um, being Paradigm, I'm guessing it's a long show. Uh, what else do we have here? They do not mention any matches, but Primetime Wrestling, from what appears to be Poland, has a show on the... What day is the first? On Sunday... At 11 a.m. Eastern. Curious what that looks like. Who if They're using wrestlers from other parts of Europe or imports or what. And what else is there here? Uh, Future Stars Wrestling on Sunday at 10 Eastern. has got to show Lethal Consequences. And yeah, they don't have matches announced here either. Just some, some, some of the names in action. The usual Future Stars. People, and that I should note too, didn't get to dig too deep into it, but the the GCW European tour shows have been going up as well on uh, on demand as they happen. So people might want to check those out as well. And uh, whether it's to get an pay-per-view or subscribe to Fight Plus, tinyurl.com slash btsfight, that's B-T-S-F-I-T-E, and we'll get a referral fee with your that's that. Now, what were you going to say? I want to apologize to some of our friends. Yes. Uh, oh, at, thank you for remembering to bring it AIW and Black Label Pro for not promoting their shows uh, because of uh, issues with their shows being on these deals here. Yeah, that I fight guess. does. No, it's that fight does not 
add a lot of these shows to the calendar on the website and the app until last minute. So, so it's not, you know, usually we're going by that, so it's not necessarily jumping out as much as it should. But yes, uh, you know, when this comes out, uh, Black Label's Turbo Graps 24 will have just taken place, and also the week before was uh, AIW JT Lightning Invitational, you know, also two shows. Oh, and the new and this year's a uh, Fresh Meat uh, New Students Showcase. But uh, yeah, but Jay, I, I haven't seen all of Jaylit. I've seen some of it, but uh, I don't know how it's possible that Masato Tanaka does not age and does not seem beat down and broken down at all. But it's impressive. Yeah, he's a freak. Of all of the guys of that generation. Who the hell would have expected Masato Tanaka to be the best preserved? Yeah, especially when you watch his ECW stuff from 25 years ago and, and all the other stuff. Yep. So, yep, definitely, uh, definitely something there, that's for sure. All right, well, today's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access. It's America's number one virtual private network. If you use incognito mode, your service provider is storing your browsing data in the meantime, even selling it. But private internet access could help. Private internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers. Hiding your data from your internet service provider and network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can understand access to geoblock content from around the world. Private internet access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mac. If you sign up with Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of especially only for Between the Sheets listeners. But well, we have uh, three options that we offer everyone. You get a uh, regular monthly package at eleven ninety-five a month. Uh, so there's that. You get a yearly package at three dollars three dollars thirty-three cents a month, or thirty-nine ninety-five a year. Or you can get the best package: three years plus four free months, dollar ninety-eight a month. $79 after the first three years. Usually thereafter, 83% off. The best damn deal in the business. And why is that? Because it's so much more expensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you can take advantage of private internet access 30-day risk-free challenge. Try it off 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just return it for full refund. Well, how you get that, you ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash twin sheets and try the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. All right, next week... On Between the Sheets, we'll go back one year to 1991, where we'll have uh, some interesting stuff to talk about. Hulk Hogan gives a very candid interview to the St. Petersburg Times as uh, Suburban Commando is about to hit the movie theaters. So we'll talk about that, including Dave Meltzer's thoughts on some of Hogan's answers, including lots of fact-checking. Shocking. We got uh, news on Titan Sports uh, trying to uh, solve some of their financial problems. And one of them is uh, creating a new pay-per-view. So we'll have news on that. Steve Planamena talks to Matt Watch about various things. We'll have Sergeant Slaughter wanting his country back. Jake the Snake in the funeral parlor. And what we didn't talk about at the end of the show that I completely forgot about, but I'll definitely mention it here. Roddy Piper clocking Vincent Mann with a steel chair on Superstars. Yes, we're going to have that. That took place during our week. 
So we'll have that and a, a thing of Oracle Ultra Warrior variety. So a big section next week. We got all kinds of stuff from uh, International, including the uh, update on the Lucha Libre strike. Is it going down? Is it not going down? We'll have a, a lot on that. And um, the indie scene in the U.S. will have news on uh, Jerry Lawler giving one of his best interviews ever on television. So we'll have that. And uh, all kind of other stuff going on in Memphis. We got Global Wrestling Federation TV tapings to talk about, including uh, the pay scale for some of their talent. New, uh, State Athletic Commission's uh, changing their pro wrestling rules. And we'll have in WCW Medusa coming over with WCW and what the plans were for her in global plus root update, WCW TV updates, all kind of other stuff. So it uh, should be quite the show next week on between uh, the sheets. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R, show profit, BT Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix and Bix. We're recording this on September 21st which is quite the day in wrestling as um, this morning WWE announced that SmackDown will be moving to NBC universal in USA. 2024. Kind of a surprise in a way that this was announced uh, like this because it just came out of nowhere. And then they decided to celebrate this announcement by releasing a bunch of wrestlers. Now, th- all, every one of these names except for two have basically been off of television lately and the two that that have been on TV were Mustafa Ali and Dana Brooke and Mustafa Ali had a title match just for NXT against D- Dirty Dom so that one you know was interesting but I mean Dolph Ziggler been there forever and you have uh, some other people that's been there for a while but pretty much everybody that was released was not being used but yeah I mean just a bad day for all these people to uh to lose their jobs. You know, we had the uh, office staff get get the axe the week before, and now here's the wrestlers. And then, you know, on the day of a new TV deal being signed, not the greatest optics in the world. Well, I mean, Vince did say in the whole all-hands meeting, I should say, that uh, business was stagnant. They had to make the Endeavor deal for that reason. So what are they to do? Is is like I said, the people they cut were people that were not being used. Yes, yes. So there, I mean, there is that, but you know, like I said, it just sucks that people are losing their jobs. Yeah, that's the worst thing about it. But you know what? I mean, if I'm these talents, and I've already seen some of them, I already talk about how excited they are now that they're able to, you know, once their ninety day ends. That now they're able to get back to the work and be able to do things. So, I mean, Matt Cardona, Steph Delander, they are two that has proven that if you're willing to do it on, on you know, to do you know the work, you could be successful. Although I, your, I, your life. I, don't know if Steph would be as successful as she's been without becoming part of the Cardona Act. Well, that well that helps absolutely. I mean, you can, you definitely have to find your way. Yeah, but we've seen others too do the same thing, you know, over time. But it can be done. It's just I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's up to the people 
themselves. You know, do do you want it? So, yeah. But WWE, oh, SmackDown going to NBC Universal. Um, specifically USA Network. Specifically USA Network, but with specials on on NBC. So they will have that. Um, listen, if you don't think this is a this is a good great move, you're out to lunch because it, the perfect example of what is a great move is watch last Friday SmackDown when The Rock and Pat McAfee were out there. That segment was ruined because of Fox and their heavy mute button. With the uh, "you are an asshole," yes, yeah. just ruined. Totally ruined. They needed to get off of Fox. You know, I mean... That's not the kind of thing that's going to happen often, though. But No, but they, but, but there's other things, too, that they've been... They, they were bloodline segments that they had to mute because of the crowd. You know, I mean, it was just... It was getting annoying at the heavy muting they were doing on SmackDown. And... Um, I just think they're going to be better off on USA Network. Um, but yeah, I mean, we had all the rumors that you know it was going uh, Disney. Uh, Disney was involved, and Amazon was involved, and people kind of were downplaying anybody else, but those two. And here's NBC Universal, the home of WWE, just swooping right in. You know? That also makes me wonder if the raw bidding has gotten too out of control for them, but they wanted to get something, so they decided to go for SmackDown. That's another thing, because Raw is still on the table, too. So... And, well, and also, if they were to get both, although it, whether it's Raw or Raw and NXT, as some people are suggesting together, if they were to be going for everything... It would then raise the question of why they didn't just buy the company. Because <laughs> Vince. Vince. <laughs> now, there's another thing that has been coming out. What do you think of this Axios uh, column about the uh, SEC filings? Yeah, that it. Okay, if I remember and understand this right, it's basically that no one. None, noticed until Axios the day we're recording this that three weeks ago as of when they're recording this in one of the big SEC filings about the merger they more or less said that Vince has primed all of his shares to be able to sell them. Am I am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, now just now describe what that what that means to the people. That as in oh as a board member, an executive officer, and everything, there's normally a process that would take some time if you needed to do that. But he made sure to get all those ducks in a row already. And something else that people didn't notice was, I don't know if they had the usual old WWE like disclaimer about how losing Vince's services would be very bad for them, but there was also this whole new disclaimer about how Vince's role as the chairman of the board could negatively affect him. So it seems like the impression people are getting is that given whatever the federal investigation is, that everyone has their ducks in a row for Vince has to be gone. 
And we had a big LA Times article come out this week as well. Yes, which didn't have events. a ton of new information. No, but it has some on the record quotes, you know, yes, from, from one uh, of the board members who departed after the Vince coup. Yeah. Yeah, so Yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. <laughs> now, you know, now that we're in the full merger, Ari Emanuel could just say, Hey, you're too much of a damn uh burden on us right now with all your shit and say, you know, Sayonara. Yeah. Cash out, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see that. And don't, and you know, isn't it interesting that his daughter is now an executive assistant in WWE? Don't think that she's not there for a reason. Not executive assistant, creative assistant. Executive assistant, what I saw. What I saw said creative assistant. Yeah, I saw an executive What's assistant. What's the daughter's name? Ashley. Ashley Emanuel. And that's Ashley with uh, A-S-H-L-E-E, Ashley. Oh, like Ashley Simpson. Um, let's see. Who should I? I'll click on the wrestling headlines aggregation of whatever this is. Um, she was hired in June 2021, according to her LinkedIn. Uh, so Fightful said she's a creative assistant. Uh, WWE hired her as a creative writing assistant for the Raw brand in June 2021. Held that until February 2022, where she was promoted to executive assistant. There you go. Oh, she w- was promoted to executive assistant the month before. She's worked as an executive assistant ever since. In January, we'll hit the two-year mark in that role. Okay. Yeah, don't think she's not there watching shit for, 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 for daddy and reporting to him what she sees. I'm also wondering whose executive assistant she is, too. Specifically, yeah. So, like I said, now the, the merger's gone down. All the pens have put the paper. The ink is dry. You could very easily say, "Say Vince, we just don't need you anymore. You're you're hurting our company's image." Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, speaking of hurting companies' images, real quick, how about Rick Knox? Uh, I mean for. What, what he's talking about is the Moxley Phoenix match from uh, Grand Slam, which, you know, all the WWE stuff today has overshadowed the, uh, you know, AEW success of Grand Slam. Both, uh, you know, they did a, a nice attendance. They had some of the best TV ratings they've had in a while. They finally broke out of their TNA rut, you know, and got a point three six in the demo. Um, Biggest walk up in the company his, in the history of the company, yeah. I should say. Yeah, so um, a, a very successful night. You know, some really strong wrestling on the show. Uh, and then you had the Moxley Phoenix match where Mox, you know, got injured, concussed, concussed basically, and um, the finish was botched. And you know, Phoenix had to give him the same pile driver twice and dropped him on his head the second time. Yeah, so... Well, here's the thing, though. By all appearances, and I haven't watched it yet, I've seen a little bit of a clip someone tweeted. I know Stevie Richards has done a breakdown on his YouTube. Which, by the way, I recommend... Got deleted! Oh, got he deleted. did? Oh, really? AEW got it pulled, and he was pissed. Uh, okay. Well, I don't know if someone's reposted the whole thing. We'll get to my other yeah, complaint there I... in a second, but like... 
Moxley looks like got knocked out on Phoenix's dive off the ramp before the bell even rang. The announcer spotted it, but seemingly no one else involved did. Like, that he was clearly legit having trouble getting up. And when he first went down, his arms were in a weird position and stuff, even though he seemed conscious. And then later, he's not turning away from kicks the way he should. At one point, he takes a lucha arm drag pretty early, and he looks like he's sleepwalking through it. Look, I would think that the person you're in the ring with, that you're doing moves with, because they have a role in your safety too, and they're the one feeling everything literally with you, they have some fault there. I'm not saying any, I'm not saying Phoenix has any fault in the initial injury. It was a freak thing, it looks like. But that he, Knox, and Doc Sampson didn't notice anything was wrong, either before the bell rang or even after Moxley got in the ring? Like, that's... That's not good, especially given some of the other issues they've had, but especially that this is the second time that someone has gotten concussed in a match refereed by Rick Knox, where he seemed completely oblivious. Being, you know, with the previous one being the... I think it was a four-way tag in Jacksonville... It was the Bucks, Reynolds, and Silver, and I forget the other teams. But um, Alex Reynolds got knocked stiff. And everyone's getting their shit in around his, you know, unconscious body. And look, one of the referee's main roles is the safety of the wrestlers. You need to be able to direct traffic, you know, just wave things off, whatever, because... In the role of the fictional referee, you're the one who is best equipped to do that. And I just... I certainly don't think the Reynolds thing happens with most of the other referees in that company. And I don't think that the Moxley thing does either. And just between that and other stuff that's happened, it's like, yes, they've added this extra layer with the rules and getting permission and all that for certain spots. So, you know, hopefully there are certain things we'd never see again. Hopefully we never see anything like the Sammy Guevara-Hardy match again, in terms of at least the spot, and hopefully also the handling of the concussion. Hopefully we never see anything like the uh, Dante Martin light break again. But there are issues in that company that they really do need to get straight with regards to safety. Yeah, one of the many issues they have right now. Yeah, and meanwhile, I mean, not a spoiler, because it'll be... You know the show will have aired by this point. On a more on a lighter note, there I don't know what's going on with what how Tony's trying to position ROH all of a sudden, but there's clearly something going on. <laughs> because on Rampage at Grand Slam, the Bucks and Hangman won the ROH six man tag titles. So now your ROH champions are Eddie Kingston, Samoa Joe, Katsuyori Shibata. The team of Adam Cole and MJF and the Humbucks. Other than Shibata are all basically mainline AEW guys. And also they had two different trios titles on the same show. Because they also had the AEW trios titles on Rampage. There's something going on. I just don't know what. You know? Well, who knows what Adam Cole's deal is. Because he fucking hurt himself jumping off the ramp. But, uh, right, his ankle and, was on crutches. Yeah, it's on crutches. I haven't seen anything else about it today. Yeah. So. Anyway. And now I'm, I'm, I'm doing that shit to himself. 
you know, and now Cole. Wow. I mean, that's another thing. Someone should have realized that him having to rush down to the ring and the only way he could get to the other side of the ring whilst looking like he wasn't wasting time was to, like, run and jump down like that. That was... It's not the biggest risk in the world, but obviously it's a type of thing stuff can happen on. That was kind of an unnecessary risk for what it was. Yeah. I mean, have him, you know, or just have him run down the ramp and don't shoot him until he's on the floor. Whatever. Like, there, there are, I don't know if it's an agenting thing, whatever. There are, there need to be more people who are doing risk mitigation in that company, it feels like. Yeah, you could say that. Part of the things, yeah. All right. Well, on that note, let's get back to the rest of the show. Oh, wait, I just realized I need to record a quick addendum here because we didn't get back to the uh, takedown of the Stevie video when I told Chris to hold the thought. Look, copyright is not a protection from embarrassment. That, and what Stevie is doing is certainly fair use. And it's bad when WWE does this and does takedowns specifically because they find a clip embarrassing or whatever. And honestly, it's a little worse when AEW does it because AEW has been more outwardly like, we are pro-fair use and we want content creators to be able to use our stuff, as long as they do it the right way. And Stevie's been doing it the right way. You know, like, it was a little stupid the way he took the shot at Tony Khan for staying at the show and doing the dance with Daniel Garcia between the tapings and stuff. But other than that, from the clip I saw and from what everyone else is saying, it was a perfectly fair, sober evaluation of what went wrong in the Moxley-Phoenix match. You know? I guess. But it just, this does keep happening, though. And it's like, I, and the thing is, especially, it keeps, ha- it, you know, for a while it was happening on Twitter stuff when they never have takedowns, you know, AW takedowns on Twitter stuff otherwise. Like, I remember the Alex Reynolds video. Got taken down. The, you know, the Simone Biles uh, rap from Max Gaster, they did takedowns. It's like, they they gotta stop this. It just, it, it just makes things worse. It really does. But anyway, I don't think you have anything else to add, so now let's actually go back to the show. Alright, since the show is really not a lot left, we're gonna do everything. Now is the last section that's left, including WWF at the end. So other USA, including WWF. Yes. Well, let's go to Tampa first. So ICWA, September 24th. Probably the Sportatorium, more often than not. Mickey J, yes, the referee, future referee, over Kenny Kendall by Countout. Coconut Savage over Bull Payne. Kevin Sullivan over a Storm Supervisor's qualification. Jimmy Backlund went to a WQ with Top Gun, which has got to be Dave Sierra under a mask. And uh, Jimmy Backlund retained his... Well, one, he faced Mark Starr in an ICW like heavy title match. Starr lost his qualification, kept his title. Of course, Jimmy Backlund beat Jimmy Del Rey. Okay. So there's um, After Magazine Darling ICWA. I'm assuming there's an angle that set up Backlund versus Top Gun turning into Backlund versus Mark Starr. I would guess so. Now let's go to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. 
and a story that we've talked about on this show before, but never really talked about because it didn't take place until now. Jim Cornette was no doubt pulling out his hair when the WF brought in Terry Taylor and Steve Armstrong for their TV tapings on September 20th in Winnipeg and September 21st in Brandon, Manitoba. Cornette had a tape in the same night in Sneedville, Tennessee. It was scheduled to run a big angle, bring about the Southern Boys, Armstrong and Tracy Smothers, with a huge push as a top babyface tag team. I find it weird that he doesn't explicitly say what Cornette wanted for Taylor, even though, I mean, years later, it's not a secret he wanted Terry Taylor and it's a top babyface. But I guess that's implied here. So, yeah, that is interesting that these two guys who you would really not expect to go to the WWF at this time go to the WWF at the time where Smokey most needed them. Yeah. And where it would seem like they were most likely to go, too. And the thing is, is that you just wonder how different is Smokey Mountain Wrestling if Taylor comes in and becomes, you know, top singles babyface and Armstrong's there at this time with Tracy as the Southern Boys. You know? And you have the Southern Boys and Rock and Rolls, and they can switch back and forth. As far as, yeah. like, your A heel team, I mean, A babyface team and B babyface team. Yeah. Or A minus, even. Yeah. Yeah, it just, you just wonder how, how different the 1993 Smoking Mountain Wrestling would be if this come, happens late in 92 and goes in 93. Right, but Terry Taylor wants in so he can prove himself and have a run other than as the Red Rooster, even if it's strictly as a prelim guy and later an announcer for some reason. And Steve, I'm sure, loved it when he heard, oh, you can wrestle and sing, Mm -hmm. even if he doesn't end up actually singing. And we'll talk about them when we get WF, but they really, I mean, Tracy basically becomes, I guess, what Trey Taylor was going to become, I guess. Yeah. So there's that, but it's not immediate. And there's Rock and Roll Express doesn't have that 1A tag team until basically they they bring in the Jericho and Storm. Yeah, yeah. And that's 94. Yeah, because the Fantastics and Rock and Rolls weren't together. They were... They were ships passing in the night, basically. Yeah. Fantastics are there for a little bit. But leave. But uh, yeah, I mean, definitely wonder how different uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling is if Terry Taylor's in and becomes Smoky Mountain Champion, feuds with Dirty White Boy, I guess, how that would have went. And then uh, have Southern Boys involved. I guess it would have what they would have done is Southern Boys would have come in and probably feuded with uh, Fuller and Golden. Yeah. To start off with, you know? And that also gives you more of a continental feel. And maybe we don't give well maybe in this situation we don't get the three way feud either. And Taylor had his history with Southeastern too. So But we don't get that we we might not get the three way feud then if, if Southern boys are involved. Because, you know, I mean you you got two separate feuds now with tag teams. You don't have a, a an odd team with nobody to feud with. Yeah. And then also you just look at who's there though. Yeah, and we'll get to the TV, or I don't know if you want to read the TV taping results first, but like... We can. But just looking, so who, you know, basically your pushed roster is at this point. Ron Garvin, Danny Davis, Paul Orndorff, Rock and Roll Express, Brian Lee. Orndorff's uh, about to leave, though. He is, but Soon. still. Dirty White Boy, 
Stan Lane, Tom Pritchard, Dixie Dynamite. You add in Terry Taylor and the Southern Boys, and now you have so much more of that continental southeastern feel. And it makes you wonder how much, if they could stay the course with that, it makes you wonder how much having that would have helped, or with there not having really been a territory in the mar- in the markets, I guess, East Tennessee, in, you know, three years, were these not the right people? I don't know. Like, what do you think of that? I mean, let's read the results. All right, so they take Sneevel, Tennessee, at Hancock County High School on the 21st. So you have Ronnie Garvin over Mike Sampson, Danny Davis over Paul Lorndorf, Rock and Rolls over Joe Kazan and Paul Lee, Brian Lee over Killer Kyle, Killer Kyle over Robbie Eagle, Dirty White Boy over Ben Jordan, Heavenly Bodies over Dixie Dynamite and Danny Davis, Dixie Dynamite over Joe Kazana, Heavenly Bodies over Ben Jordan and Robbie Eagle, and Danny Davis over Mike Sampson by his qualification. Now, this is what you got right here. I mean, Kevin Sullivan's coming in, so you got him and all that stuff going on. Um, Orndorff's going to be leaving, so you take him, basically take him out of the equation, pretty much. Um, yeah, I mean, you def- they definitely needed more named guys, and you add Southern Boys and Tracy into this mix. I mean, Southern Boys and Terry Taylor in this mix, and that's a definite boost. So... And, I mean, let's be realistic, at least in terms of how Cornette would be looking at it, knowing from how we know he looks at these things, he's thinking, oh boy, more and more, you know, quote-unquote, blowjob babyfaces will draw better. In and a way. quantities. Like, anyway, for what it's worth, so I pulled up, because Jason Campbell on his site has a spreadsheet. Smoky Mountain Attendance Summary. It's a listing of every show. Plenty don't have attendances, but he includes the ones from the Observer that do. Um, so up to this point, they've mainly been maxing out at like a thousand on Knoxville shows and not really com- coming close to that most other places. There, there's, there was a show on September 7th in Shinston, West Virginia that it said did 1100. Um, one of the Daunted City shows did 1,500, you know, again, according to the estimate sent to the Observer. But it's not like they ever really regularly do better than this. But they also just started. You know, this has been a promotion running regular, I mean, full-time for four months, less. Because, like, are they even really on a full-time schedule at first? Yeah. So, it makes you wonder, like, what could they have done to build it up more? Because the level they're doing at this point is the level they pretty much stay at in terms of consistent business. We talked about this so many times before. Jimmy just, he didn't understand the territory to get it to be where it could have been. You know, he tried to book it too much like Memphis and Crockett as a mashup. And Mid-South. And Mid-South, but Southeastern was a different beast altogether. So... Now, he did have people around him who knew the territory, like Dr. Tom. Yeah, Yeah, but they're not booking. 
Hmm. I mean, they're not booking. And, I mean, if we're going to be honest, too, I mean, the last year or so of Continental wasn't doing, you know, amazing business in there either. No. There, I mean... How was okay? So how was the Tennessee side doing compared to the Alabama side during that last year? I don't know because I don't have attendance numbers. Right, and we're, I, I like just we're seeing they, it on TV. Yeah. I just know they weren't doing what they had been doing in '87, '88, and God knows '86. Right. Because right. I mean they are the king of the territory in '86, '87, into going into '88, and USA did pretty decent, but yeah. Because, I mean, you know, it's like Cornette chose to go here. And granted, his original idea was also to include, like, the Crockett Towns. So the first, the first tapings in Greenville, South Carolina. Right. Until he realized he would have to pay too much for TV. But he didn't try to go for Alabama. The idea came from how well WCW was doing in Knoxville and Johnson City compared to other markets in 90. That's basically what led to the idea of Smoky Mountain Rising. And see, that, and see that's the thing, too, is that... The promotions that were going to be uh, that were going to be the most successful in Knoxville were going to be the national promotions because that's where they had gotten to at the time of their locals. They they had burnt the locals out on local wrestling to where you yeah you could get some in there, but some fans. But now they've had the taste of the major leagues all the time. That's that's where they're at. I mean that's also Cornette not realizing that Crockett had been in there a long time. So like. And WCW is the continuation of Crockett, so it's like, it's not, whoa, this is the only place WCW is doing well, which is like, yes. Well, okay. That's something, that, but like... Crockett hadn't been in there for a long time. There were there were major gaps, Biggs. Okay, but still, they had a long history there. They had a history, but even then, I mean, there's still, you know, the long gap here. When you flare Mulligan, them fell in their face. Fell flat on her face. I know, but they end up coming back and running Johnson City after. I'm talking about after that mainly. But you look at Knoxville. Knoxville, then you know, is dormant for basically a year. Well, I want to say a year. Uh, it's dormant for a good eight months until Oli gets back in there, and they run Knoxville to the end of the promotion. Well, in fact, they run Knoxville, you know, into when he starts his promotion. But then when when Ole's promotion dries up, Crockett doesn't run Knoxville. Just it doesn't happen. Knoxville's not Knoxville's not part of their regular run. Knoxville's not part of any regular run until Southern All Star starts up. I know that, but that's what I said. You got a long gap there, a year plus of eighty five of 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 eighty five basically, and and months in, from eighty four and eighty six. But Crockett's running Johnson City at least in that time. They're not running Knoxville, Bix. Knoxville's no, they're not the, running. No, I know the money town. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not counting Johnson City. I'm counting Knoxville. I, right, I'm not just okay. That's where I just connect is. I wasn't just talking about Knoxville. I was talking about East, East Tennessee in general. But Johnson City, I mean, yeah, they're running it, but they're not running it regularly. Right, and they're running it because it's it was Jim Senior's hometown was the Tri Cities. I mean, they're run, Roanoke is is run very regularly, of course. Yeah. So there's there's that what that is, but but yeah, I mean, it's just 
it was it's one of them territories where once they got a taste of the big time, that's the wrestling that they considered the wrestling. Why would I want to go see this small time group? To the to the general masses, not everybody, but to the general masses. That that I mean that's basically what it is. Because look, WWF was starting was going heavy into uh, East Tennessee, Bristol, lots of TV tape there, Knoxville. You know they were going in that area with their with their stuff too. So I just I, I it just I'm just saying it would have been interesting to see how Terry Taylor would have done here at this point in time, you know, as a baby face, because he hadn't been a top baby face in a long time. And all that stigma and all the shit that he had been doing for the past few years, would those fans have taken him seriously in that role? I definitely would have been interested to see that. Yeah. I wish he would have got a chance. Should have just told Terry Taylor he'd get to come in and wave the Confederate flag around. I'm sure he would have come then. <laughs> Or offered in the book. I mean, I mean, I mean, I was, well, I don't know. The corner ain't gonna do that. Eh, he was never gonna offer anyone else the book. But I'm just saying, have him maybe involved. Sure. Have him maybe involved. All right. Let's get back here. Uh, go to the uh, Prosa Torch. No, you missed. We we skipped something. Oh no, no excuse me. You're right. No, I'm right. Smoking Mountain officials are looking for the Mongolian Mauler who's disappeared and missing his dates. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he was the first one brought in the whole Kevin Sullivan thing, and then he's gone. Yes. Before yes. Sullivan gets there, basically. Yes, a, a white guy with black contact lenses playing a Mongolian. It'd be in WCW uh, two years, well, a little over a year later, year and a half very, later. Very, very brief run, yes. All right, Memphis. A couple of time changes on this September 21st Memphis show at Memphis Coliseum. Junkyard Dog won the unified title, being how safe to good with the Russian leg sweep in one minute. That's right, one minute. While Brian Christopher regained the Southern title, beating Reno B. Bad Riggins. <laughs> okay, why is Dave calling him that? Because Reno Riggins is kind of looking like Johnny B. Bad in a way. A low rent version. Is he uh, also hair, doing a blackface hair, gimmick? Hair, uh, no, hair, uh, gear, tan. He's not doing Rich, Little Richard, but... You have to see them to get their some like their similarities. Uh, Jerry Lawler and Jarrett Jarrett will all say non-title match on September 21st to the Howard Hughes Connection. Mr. Hughes and Jeff Gaylord, who Dave guesses is Howard, when there two, were two ref bumps before Burt Prince came out as a third ref, went and counted as the Bayface had the heels pinned. Richard Lee then came out and tripped Jarrett as he went to suplex one of the heels, and Lee held his leg as Prentice counted to three. Jimmy Hart, who is said to be their manager, wasn't in the Coliseum with the story that he was out forever at the Eddie Gilbert Lost Town match for Hart against Lawler back about six years ago. Let's talk about that. All right, we don't have the TV, of course, because Saturdays were already done on this show. But when Jimmy, I mean, Jimmy Hart was in the studio for TV to lead up to this match. So I guess it's kind of – and then he says that he couldn't be at the Coliseum because he, of the Loser Leave Town thing six years earlier or seven years earlier. So, how do you explain him being on the in the TV studio the previous Saturday? They gave him a special <laughs> allowance because it was the greatest day of his life, baby. <laughs> I mean, it's silly. All right, full results of this show. I think we know which Jerry's booking at this point. Brookhouse Brown over the Hornet. Ron Oaks at Sting. A Eric Amber over Doug Gilbert by disqualification. 
women's title match. Moondog Fifi beat Miss Texas to win the title. Billy Joe Travis over Bill Dundee. Christopher Riggins to win the USWA title. Tommy Rich and Buddy Landell beat Reno Riggins and Bill Dundee. Mike Samples, Burt Brennan, and Richard Lee beat Jerry Lawler, Jeff Jarrett, and Eddie Marlin. Then the Howard Hughes connection, Mr. Hughes, <laughs> Jeff Gaylord beat Jerry Lawler and Jeff Jarrett. And then JYD beat Eddie Gilbert in one minute. Which one do we think was bottling their urine, and which one do we think was saving their toenail clippings? <laughs> I never – I mean, we played that whole thing before on this show a long time ago with the the birth of the Howard Hughes connection, whereas Mr. Hughes is Mr. Hughes and Jeff Gaylord uh, wearing his uh, shirt and tie. That name made no fucking sense. And it's supposed to be some WF-type thing when neither guy was working or had been working for the WF. Very weird. What a weird run of unified champions they have in 92 as well. Yeah. So, okay, so if we go from the beginning of the year, Kamala's your initial champion. Then Coco Beware, Kamala again, Jerry Lawler, Eddie Gilbert, Ricky Morton, or as WrestlingTitles.com says, Rick Morton, I guess because they're taking it from PWI Almanac. Uh, oh, Mem- Memphis building him as Rick Morton pretty much the whole time he was there. Every time he came okay. in. Uh, Eddie Gilbert. Junkyard Dog, Butch Reed, Todd Champion in a fandom title change in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes. Jerry Lawler, Coco Ware, Jerry Lawler. And of course, into 93, it then goes to Papa Shango and Owen Hart. Plus, with, you know, Lawler mixed in Tatanka and Randy Savage. You get the WF guys getting their shot, getting their runs with the title. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh... <laughs> Quite the run here as uh, the WF starts getting more and more involved in the territory. The Howard Hughes connection. But yeah, it was, it was interesting Jimmy Hart when I first saw that returning to Memphis. Was, I had totally forgotten that happened. Because, I mean, at this time period, we've lost Channel 69. So I'm not seeing Memphis wrestling anymore. Aww. So, yeah. This becomes like a blur. And so I was able to watch it later on. I was like, oh, shit, Jimmy Hart came back. So. Moondog Cujo, Lanny Keene's out of action with a slip disc and won't be back for a long time. Moondog Spot is still around, but seemingly won't be getting much of a push. Well, they're going to bring another Moondog, so don't worry about that, Dave. Now let's go to Big D. They ran September 20th at the Rocket Palace in Dallas, Texas. Rocket Fiesta Palace. We only have two results. Oh, my God. I just saw one of the names. Scott Braddock and Ray Evans beat Terry Sims and Dino Hernandez. Come on. (laughs) And Eric Embry and Tommy Rich went to WDQ in four minutes. Those are the only results we have here, at least. Uh, Well, you can't have Big D Pro Wrestling without Eric Embry. And Terry Sims. And now we go to be tiny pants pro wrestling. (laughs) And then we go to Colorado championship wrestling, booked by Eric Embry. So Eric Embry's in Dallas. He's in Memphis. And now he's in Colorado two days later. Okay. So real quick, when is, when is the battery acid angle in Memphis? Because that's That's what they used to write him at. So he came back after that. I thought they wrote him out with that. Okay. No, no. So he came back as a baby. Okay. So what is he actually based out of at this point? I guess Colorado because he's we got Colorado Championship Wrestling here. So the results of this show: Billy Mack over Mike Medicini, oh, Lou Perez over the Cuban Assassin, 
which could, I guess, is Dave Sierra. Uh, Pat Tanaka and Dean Malenko over the State Patrol. Yes. Lieutenant James O'Reilly and Sergeant Bailey Parker. Al Perez over Kevin Sullivan. And Eric Embry over Abdullah the Butcher. I used to have a little bit of footage of that match. So here's Colorado Championship Wrestling. A rare, uh, rare look at them at this point in time. I Although they have been wrestling. around. They have been around. This is Eric Embry's run as the booker. The And it was not a lot. The only footage I've ever seen is from this Eric Embry's booker run. Because uh, I have results from them from 89 and 90. So were they just what? running as an indie without TV, or did, have they had TV? They, I guess. I guess. Because in that era, you had like Buddy Rose, Colonel the Beers. That's where Scorpio got his start. He worked okay. for them. So Korchenko was running as a decently successful indie promoter in the area for a few years. I guess so. Okay. Yeah, someone's got to find him the footage from that. That's got to show up on the uh, Crispy Lettuce Patreon. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Eventually. Someone's got to find it. All right. Now we're going to close that with the World Wrestling Federation. Several newcomers debuted at TV taping in Winnipeg on the 21st. Maximilian Moves. No idea, Dave said. <laughs> It's Max Moon, Maximilian Moon. I don't think he was ever actually named Maximilian Moon. We're about to get into that. We're about to get into that. That's coming up. Lance Cassidy, who they believe was Steve Armstrong in a singing cowboy role, although I don't know for sure. Matt Bourne, last known as Big Josh in WCW. And terrific Terry Taylor, who got something of a heel push. Here's how you know Terry Taylor is the source of this. I'm kidding. But how could you watch any terrific Terry Taylor and think he's getting something of a heel push? Well, maybe the taping he did. I don't know. Uh, and then we have, of the newcomers at the tapings, Lance Cassidy was Steve Armstrong doing the singing gimmick. This is a week later. While Maximilian Moon was named number 436 for Paul Diamond, who's trying to break Jack Victory's record. I th- he was very briefly Maximilian Moon. Yeah. And then very quickly was shortened to Max Moon. Um, so. Okay. Was it ever explained why he didn't get the robot suit? Why he's just wearing the gear. But the huge, expensive robot exoskeleton for Conan went to waste. Because it wasn't Conan in the gimmick. It was Paul Diamond, I guess. And the gear, and the, the suit was for Conan, but Conan's not there. But, he, the, Paul, but the reason he took on the gimmick in the first place was that he said he could, that Conan's gear would fit him. I don't know. I'm just so, saying. But yeah, seri- I mean, seriously, though. How can you watch terrific Terry Taylor and think he's getting a push? Yeah. That's that's sketchy to me. Whatever the reason is, it's sketchy. Yeah. Well, let's get into the these, these results, I guess. Although Well, I mean, no, not yet. Sardner Sauner debuted a new role, which appears to be a troubleshooting agent referee. So Dave guessed they have retired him from the ring. Slaughter will referee the Warrior Savage and Flair Ramon match of Survivor Series. Okay, this ends up being one of those things that I don't even remember if this made TV, but definitely made it to the magazine. But he didn't referee that match. No. Savage, the Savage Henning Flair Razor match. He didn't referee that match. No, but I'm saying as far as the troubleshooting official yeah. role, did that make it to TV at all? I don't think it did. I don't remember. But the idea of him being a troubleshooting official was in the magazine. Yeah. Now... And then- was a thing because Dave talks about it, so... Yeah, and then... What is it, a year, year and a half later, where he shows up on Mania one morning, 
and explains he's the new vice president of the World Wrestling Federation. And it's never referred to again, but it's stressed that if Tony were to leave office, he would be the new president of the WWF. And then when Tony does leave office, he's not the new president of the WWF. Yeah. They wanted to do something with him, clearly, and it just... Well, he's on the the company. He's on the company. Isn't he there as an agent the whole time? He's working for Paul Opperstein. Oh, yeah. Wait a second. Well... So in, both, does, in both runs of the NWF. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're, yeah, I, I wasn't thinking of the first run at first. Because those those tapings are what, late 94? Early 95. Okay, so the, okay, so that makes sense. So if Sarge is in the company, does he become New World Wrestling Federation president? Do they actually Got, win? Yeah, it? probably so, yeah. Especially because they clearly had been looking for a role for him like that for so long. And then just give it the gorilla. Yes. So anyway, at the table had a conversation where Undertaker and Nails met, going to from the ring, and Slaughter got in between them. Slaughter also watched most of the matches with camera shots on him wearing a suit. Some of that might have aired, but mainly on primetime, I think. The main angle of taping saw Big Boss and regain his nice state doing running his nails and beating a jobber with a stick. However, later in the car, Nails came up another squash with, with a nice stick, so now Bossman has two and Nails has one. Maybe they can get a fourth and put four poles in the match Survivor Series on a nice stick on each. Bro, 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 I <laughs> love it. Now we know where that idea came from. Well, I mean, it doesn't even work there yet. Well, he's reading the Observer. They also announced uh, Undertaker versus Kamala for Survivor Series, so it appears they've dropped the elimination tag format in favor of a straight wrestling card, at least as far as the match is meant to draw an audience. Basically, reaction to reality. But they just can't put anything on pay-per-view and have it draw anymore. They have to have singular issues in the money matches. Building a pay-per-view around a gimmick like Survivors and Rumble was fine. Pay-per-view was on a big money source, but times have changed. Yeah. All right, so we actually have full results. I put here from uh, taping here in Winnipeg on the 21st, just because of the, the names and stuff. Boss Man over Nails by DQ. Matt Bourne over Bill Jordan. And yes, he's working as Matt, Matt Bourne. Barry Horowitz over Brad Holman. Razor over Savage by Countout. Warrior over Flair by DQ. This is obviously not the exact order for the WF title. Terry Taylor over Jim Brunzel. Bulldog retained IC title over Kamala. Earthquake over Ted DiBiase. Beverly Rose with no contest with high energy. Terry Taylor over Jim Powers. Skinner over Chad Almont. Razor Ramon over Steve May. Max Moon over Jerry Fox. High energy over Brian Jewell and Ken Johnson. Eric Freedom went to no contest with Nails. That, wait, that Max- must be Eric Freeze, right? No, there was a guy named Mary Freedom. In, uh, Lance, no, but there was Eric Freeze in Winnipeg, though. That's what I'm saying. It's probably the same guy. Yeah. Lance Cash over Tom Rocky Stone. Kamala over Kevin Krueger. Bret Hart over Bill Jordan. Sean Michaels over Steve Gillespie. Tatanka over Brian Jewell. Big Boss over Barry Horowitz. Bulldog over Tony Icy Tyler. That can't be right. Bulldog beat Jim Peterson. Not Icy Tyler match. Ted DiBiase and Irwin R. Scheister. Money Inc. over Jim Powers and Bob St. Laurent. No, not Mr. St. Laurent. Crush over Kim Johnson. Kim Johnson. Natural disasters over Bill Jordan and Tom Stone. Nails with no contest with Scotty Zappa. Undertaker over Jason Helton. Rip March over Butch Banks. Great name. And Papa Sean over Victor Reed. Okay. Do we want to go over our recognizable job guys yet or wait till we get through the other taping? Well, we got another taping. And Brandon on the 22nd at Keystone Center. Nails over Boss Man, Dave Siegfried over Kamala by DQ, Bret Hart over Barry Horowitz, Bulldog over Tony Icy Tyler over Kamala by Countout, Papa Shang over Chad Almont, 
Big Boss Nerd Jim Peterson, Tatanga over Tom Stone, Bulldog over Red Tyler. Ooh. Oh, I Crush. didn't have the, I, I didn't have the thing set up. Whatever. Crush over Matt Bourne, Brett over Razor Ramon, Warrior over Flair by Countout, Sean over Coco, Papa Sean over Boston by Countout, Virgil over Luis Ficoli, Bret Hart over Blake Beverly, Max Moon over Rip Martel by DQ, Savage over Shango. Then we got Crush over Scotty Zappa, Shango over Chad Almont, Bushwaggers over Dale Hutchison and Butch Banks, Bossman over Peterson, Rip Martel over Victor Reeves, Bull over Red Tyler again. Jason Phillips and Jim Powers over the Nasty Boys by DQ. Beverly's over Jerry Fox and Air Freedom. Max Moon over Brooklyn Brawler. Repo Man over Steve May. Nails over Tom Stone. Natural Disaster over Ken Johnson and Victor Reeves. Tatanka over Red Tyler. Kamala over Brian Jewell. Iron G over Bob St. Laurent and Bill Lyons. Money Inc. over Jim Brunzel and Dave Siegfried. Shawn Michaels over Kevin Kruger. And Razor Ramon over Steve Gillespie. Okay, so... We have a mix of mainly Twin Cities and Winnipeg indie guys doing jobs. And we also have a few fly-in guys doing jobs in the form of Barry Horowitz and Louis Bacoli. Which, it is interesting that being that they were willing to fly him in, that he doesn't actually get a regular spot. Because other than the guys who were regulars, who actually got that? Like, who else was being flown in to be a reliable job guy in that era? Besides your Barry Hartwitzes. Um, there were others. There were others. Um, I can't really name them off the top of my head because I had to go and look, but there were others that were guys that were being definitely flown in from their normal spots to do jobs. Okay. George South was working stuff at one point in time that he wouldn't normally be working at in, in places. Gotcha. Okay. But they were going though. They, I mean, that's the thing. You know, you would get the the Mike Jackson crew. They go to fucking Winnipeg in in eighty in the eighties and do jobs at AWA TV tapings in Winnipeg. Hmm. Absolutely. But anyway, so as far as uh, your locals and your Minnesota guys here, so Bill Jordan's Bill Jodwin, I believe. Um. Chad Almont, and looking that name up, he ends up working for Big D in 93. I knew the name looked familiar, but there you go. Um, where's Jerry Fox from? I recognize the name. Canadian guy. Brian Jewell's another Winnipeg guy. Yeah. Uh, Tom Stone, of course, is from Minnesota. Steve Gillespie's from Winnipeg. Uh... I feel like I should know the name Jim Peterson, but it's also a very generic name, so I may be confusing him with someone else. Eric Freedom has to be Eric Freeze. Uh, Jason Helton is a Calgary guy, who I guess is working for Tony Condello at the time. Scotty Zappa, of course, veteran Minnesota guy, later Sheik Scotty Z. And I think that's about it, as far as the the at least semi-recognizable job guys here. And because we talked about it before, this has to be the taping where the doink idea comes from. But there's no Warrior Hawk. He's but gone. there's no way it's one of, but it's not one of the Road Warriors who says it. Right. They're not here. Do we think it's possible they flew Animal in and it's him? No. So, 
And it, now, is Bruce Pritchard the only one that's told the story of others told it to? That's one I know of. I, I'm sure it's true. Because they're I'm not. Share sources. I'm just thinking, I just... They're trying him out without that gimmick in mind, is my point. I'm I I'm saying it would not shock me at all if the story is true with the participants wrong. That's probably a better way to put it. But presumably it's at this taping, so the question is, who is it if it's not Roboy or Hawk? It's a pretty big difference in who anybody else but Roboy or Hawk. Right, because who on this sh- who on these tapings would you mistake for Roboy or Hawk? Exactly. But anyway, I mean, it's just your standard fair tapings than the debuts, so there's that. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> what is it? Is it the next month where they do that dedicated primetime taping? Because this uh, is Superstars and super and Challenge in primetime, right? Yeah. Nasty Boys are being replaced for a few shows by Double Trouble. Apparently because one of the guys is having his knee cut. That's a way to put that. Samu and Fatu are now being called the Head Shrinkers, and they beat on Primetime Wrestling last week. Didn't their initial match on Primetime have them using a different name, though? Uh, I think so. I think they were initially the Samoans, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. For one match. Yeah. And then I think there was maybe a graphic saying the Headhunters were debuting, and then they showed up as the Head Shrinkers. Yeah, something like that. So they had a few names here. All right, we got uh, some house shows in Stuttgart, Germany, on September 24th at the Hans Martin Schleier Hall in Stuttgart. We have IRS over Virgil, Crush, and Road Warrior Animal over the Beverly Brothers. So, one of those rare instances where Crush was a member of the Legion of Doom. Randy Savage over Ted DiBiase. Uh, WF International Tag Team title match. What? It's got to be World Tag Titles. Natural Disaster Tanner over Papa Shango and Skinner. That's a match. Bird Hart over Martel. Bushwickers over The Genius and Kato. And then Flair retained the WF title beating El Matador, Tito Santana. Now the rest, of the, the rest of the crew is in Omaha. Okay, okay wait, 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 wait. Where did you get these results from that it says WWF International Tag Team Titles? Wrestling data. The natural disasters are the champions at this point. They're the world tag so champions. So there's yes. no reason they would be making up an extra title. Or they just, just build them. Maybe they build them wrong. Oh, like they're taking it. Oh, you think because it's wrestling data, maybe there's like a program or something that has them listed? Because it's a German site that has them listed as yeah. national tag team champions? I guess. That would probably make the most sense, right? Yeah. All right, the other crews in Omaha, Nebraska, on the 24th. We have Repo Man over Jim Powers, Shawn Michaels over Jim Brunzel, High Energy over Double Trouble, the Puccios. Oh. Big Boss Man over Nails by DQ, Bulldog over Mountie and Icy Title Match, Razor over Duggan, and Warrior over Kamala. Okay. I'm curious if there are any letters from Bruce Grummert in the weeks after this. Just because it's an Omaha show. It's not a TV taping, though, so I'm guessing he didn't uh, do a shtick. Well, of course not. It's our show. Uh, but, so there's your cruise there. I'll take a side of action with a broken collarbone for another week or so. Jim Duggan replaced him around the horn this past week. So there's mm-hmm. that. 
Lou Albano has talked with some folks about coming in, but the current holdup is Albano doesn't want to go on the road full time as no deal has been cut. Rumor has it Albano's role will be as a Bayface manager for the Nasty Boys, who are going to be turned under the present plan. But that would have been an interesting way of, of, of doing that. Yes. And Nasty Boys kind of lost as Babyfaces. So having Albano there as their manager would have definitely probably helped them out. Is he skinny vegetarian Albano yet? Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. If he's not, he's about to be. Yeah. Undertaker and Kamala, as far as to be a match where the winner has stuffed the loser in a casket. Yes, first time they ever did the casket match. Although, did they call it a casket match here or a coffin match? Coffin. So, by the way, do they have it trademarked or something? I, did, I haven't bothered looking that AEW keeps saying coffin match. Maybe. And also, even though Dave always says he he did it, you know, along promotional lines, he keeps calling Kamala Kimala here, even though in WWF it's not Kimala, it's Kamala. Yeah. It's it's a weird thing when you try to do results searches on Kamala and Kimala, what territories use what spelling. In fact, some territories use both spelling. Oh, I'm so, shocked. Yes. Uh, the air footage of Bob Bacchus matches from a decade ago against Pat Patterson, Superstar Billy Graham, of all people, on September 20th on All-American Wrestling. Hmm. And we do have our sole clips of the show. So let's go to Wrestling Challenge. And uh, Nature Boy Ric Flair, who, of course, is the uh, WF World Heavyweight Champion. And um, let's see what's going on there, shall we? Perfect. The new World Wrestling Federation champion, Rick Flair. Woo! I think our Mean Gene meant executive cheat. Is that what he meant, Brain? No, he means WWF champion. It's that simple. Cut and dry. Why does Oakland always have that weird warbly voice when he introduces Flair in this era? Maybe he's just entranced by Rick Flair. It's like, it's like uh, why am I forget? It's like Samantha Irvin introducing Chelsea Green. But you, but you know she has a uh, she. Have you heard that? I mean, she's got a reason for that. No, she, no, I she, like the way she does that. No, she tells. She said, "Did you see her on the bump last yeah. week? Her and Ricochet, which was cute because they basically was holding hands the whole time. Aww. But uh, she talks about her ring introductions, and she says, you know, I'm a professional singer, and I emote when I sing." On, on on lyrics and stuff. So when I announce the names, I emote on the names like their character would portray. Or, or, or it portrays like their character. How she announces, Gunta! You know, or Chelsea! You know? Chelsea Green! Yes. I, li- I, I like that. Oh, I, like I do a- too. I'm not complaining. I like it a lot. Samantha Irvin is excellent at her job. Yes. She's one of the best hires they've had. She's fantastic. And she's distinct, too, because of stuff like that. So, like, her and Mike Rome almost feel like they serve different roles. They complement each other. You might have my, one doing what the other does. But they might Mike Rome, though, is Mike Rome comes off too much like he's doing Justin Roberts. Really? I don't John. know if I get that. He does. He does the, the, some of the Justin Roberts ticks. I mean, like, it's not over, it's not over as much, but it's, it's there if you listen. 
I don't feel like we get Gian Cena from him. There is one that he does the the long drawn out version of their name. I can't I can't remember who it is. Anyway, but then Justin Robertson took the John Cena and gave the John Moxley. Gian Moxley, the Dapper Yapper. Sure. Anyway. Also, God bless Jim Johnson, but the, his player theme sounds so cheap and terrible. Like, if yeah. it's a public domain song, why don't you just record a new version of it instead of recording something new? He had to I put his own it. touch on. He had to do his own touch to it, Bix. Uh, I know all these people today long for Jim Johnson, but Jim Johnson had a lot of stinkers, too. He wasn't always all great greatness. I mean, with the volume he's putting out, that's going to happen. Of course. It's not, I mean, it's just the way it is, but... He wasn't the be-all, end-all. Let's put it that way. Right. I mean, people get on Mikey Ruckus sometimes, but, like, the bad Mikey Ruckus themes, you need to understand, are the ones he's being told, like, we need a theme song, like, three hours in advance. (laughs) So. Yeah, nobody's perfect. Yeah. Say that again? They're not running Atlanta this time. Well. But it's Flair. So of course he's yeah. gonna he's gonna give a shout out to Atlanta. But yeah, I, <laughs> kinda makes you wonder if he's if he's talking about that or if he's mentioning or he's taking a shot at WCW. I think he's saying that what they're talking about at the CNN Center is that Rick Flair is the Because team. they ran January fifth. They had a show booked on November the second, but I don't think it ever happened. Well, also, when did the showing the old Flair matches start? Oh, that's been started. They never run 93. In fact, they don't run Atlanta again until the 99 Raw. Okay, so so if that's started already, then this is, yeah, that's a shot at, the, at WCW using Flair to draw ratings at this time. Mm-hmm, yep. Here's <laughs> my friend! Don't walk on me! champion, it is incumbent on you, Mr. Flair, to defend this title with dignity. Also, let me remind you that President Jack Tunney of the World Wrestling Federation has determined the number one contender is 
the ultimate warrior. Not too happy, is he? That is news to you. By the way, another one for the Vintism list. Let me remind you. <laughs> yeah. It's one Oakland used a lot, but it is a Vintism. Because Vince ends, when Vince becomes an interviewer, he uses it a ton. But be that as it may. Uh, let me reiterate. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that was going to happen. I did not watch this clip in advance. But thank you, Rick, for mixing it up at least. Or listen to Mr. Perfect to begin with, he'd be out here running the road. But you know what? Instead of listening to us, he chose to listen to all those little idiotic Somebody start to cramp up. And you know what you'll be then? Tell him, Mr. Perfect. He will not be the ultimate warrior. He will be the ultimate loser. All right, pause. All right, so that's a flare on challenge. Now, a night later on primetime wrestling, Flair returns. But he's not in a normal spot. He's at a TV studio in Charlotte. Allegedly. Allegedly. So uh, let's go to uh, primetime wrestling here for the panel here. Bobby Heenan, Mr. Perfect. And uh, who's on the other side here? Uh, I don't know. All right, let's see. Hopefully they don't say wimp and loser a lot here. What's introduction? That's yeah. Doug and Hibbert, Jim. Standing by, what will Ronald Q do? Well, you obviously yeah. you can't do it. Standing by at WJZY in Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> sure. I'd like to introduce, and it's going to be my pleasure and your pleasure to strap on your jetpack. There he is, the WWF Heavyweight Champion, Rick Cliff. Everyone! Woo! I believe the whole world knows why 
the phrase was coined all the way live. I got my baby back. <laughs> We're styling and profiling. How about it, boys? Oh, we ever had it. Hey, Let me ask you a question. <laughs> you may be Claire. You may be one of the greatest technical wrestlers in the WWF today. But why did you have to cheat? Why did you have to use Razor Ramon to get that belt? Exactly. One of the greatest technical wrestlers. That's what I said. Read my list. The World Wrestling Federation champion just plain outperforms them all. If the Razor wants to walk down to study the techniques of the great one, that's not my fault. They do that worldwide. How about you guys how about to be close to Rick Flair? You get real close or you get out of the way. No, <laughs> Jack. Hold on, this is Hillman and Jim. I got something to ask you here. Well, you know, what are you feeling at this particular time about the Ultimate Warrior? And do you feel kind of like we do that he might just mop that ring up with you? Yo, Billy, let me tell you something about the Ultimate Warrior. If he wants to keep on dancing, he's going to dance right out of my path. We, when I say we, I mean Bobby the Brain, the great Mr. Perfect, and Rick Flair. This is a team. We are. And baby, I mean it. We are the World Wrestling Federation. Yes, so we're everything exposed. We're gold, we're prestige, we're notoriety, we're the big time. So Flair is no a WWF. He's going to get in the way of all. <laughs> well, why does it take three or four of you to get in Because every time you talk about the Ultimate Warrior, you start squeezing that That's cell it, a little tighter. Hold on to it, boy. Hey, 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 don't you wish one day in your life you could have squeezed the baby like you? I can't worry about that. 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 And what was it, the call letters for that station that Bobby Heenan gave out? They had an on-screen graphic. Because I don't think that that station exists. Let's see. As I go back. Um, I'm assuming they were giving... Okay, so it's W-I-Z-Y is what they give out. W-I-Z-Y, okay. Nope. Ever or currently? J-Z-Y. That was a uh, a UHF station in Charlotte. I know it is WJZY. It just couldn't tell from the font. Okay, all right. Okay, so that is that is accurate. I'm assuming all of these are just they're giving their local affiliates call letters. That's a Fox affiliate, yeah. Which would have been probably carrying the program was a Fox affiliate. Yeah. So yes, it is WJZY. It just did, it was hard to tell until I zoomed in. But yeah, they they do this gimmick for what the last year of primetime. Yeah. And and it's all, maybe a little less, but it's always these identical blue curtains. Every time. Yeah. So, in other words, they're in Stanford. Just, of course. For some reason, they decided this was a gimmick they would do. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Next week on Between the Sheets, we'll go back in time one year from this week. To 1991, where we'll have uh, World Championship Wrestling, and they're having, uh, of course, issues drawing at house shows. Oh, what else? We got an update on the uh, New York TV situation. Uh, 
talk about Rick Rude and Medusa Michelli and why uh, is she coming in? We also have news on the, some state athletic commissions and their uh, new look at wrestling. We got um, news on Global Wrestling Federation. They take TV during our week and uh, just what they're paying some of their guys. In Memphis, we got Jerry Lawler giving what Dave Meltzer was told was one of the best interviews he's given in years on television. So there's that. Plus, Freezer Thompson gets a little TV push here. Ooh. We have other assorted indie news to talk about. In Mexico, we got news on the strike. Yeah. So we'll have news on that and a uh, possible a deal on the horizon. So we'll have a uh, had that story. Uh, Japan, we got some, some all Japan stuff, including uh, a note about Masawa and, and Masafuji coming to the U.S. scouting for talent. And the World Wrestling Federation, we got a uh, some clips. It's oh, a warrior in the funeral parlor. We'll have that. Sarder Sarder wants his country back. We'll talk about that. We have Steve Planamena talking to Matt Watch about a couple of things. We have oh, TV boy. taping, TV tapings during our week as well to talk about. And um, we got news on another pay-per-view at Survivor Series being announced. A mystery got, pay-per-view, yes. We got uh, news on how Titan Sports is planning to uh, planning to uh, resolve some of their financial problems. And the big story of the week, Suburban Commando comes out, not during our week, but we have buildup for that, including a very candid Hulk Hogan interview with the St. Petersburg Times. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. Do we have a guest? Tentatively, no. Okay. So, um, yeah, so it should be an interesting show next week. All right, big thanks as always for the Rock of the Show. It's Christian. So long from the Peach State of Georgia. Free your
everyone, and welcome to Between the Seats Patreon Special Edition number 84. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, this show will close out seven full years of the Patreon. Hard to believe we've come this far. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, like we've talked about before, I don't know why it doesn't feel that way, but it's like, it's it's always weird to me when we think about how we started the Patreon just a little bit after the first anniversary of the show. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like we've been doing the main show much longer. Yeah, it does. But we are here. Yes. And on that note, we're starting a new little sub-series here. As we're doing a two-part series on Todd is God. Todd Gordon's autobiography. He wrote with Sean Oliver. And uh, we have... uh, a bunch of ECW shows already up in the Patreon, and this is going to be a, uh, you know, a nice little companion to that because we're going to have a different point of view, as we'll have Todd Gordon's point of view instead of the Paul Heyman universe point of view yes. here. So, so it'd be quite the little uh, contrast at times, I'm sure, as we do this. All right, well, let's jump to this. Todd Gordon carrying Ric Flair's bags during Slambury Night for Weekend, Philadelphia. Let's go to the Torch Yearbook. Excerpt from Bruce Mitchell's largest ever fourth annual year-end quiz. Question number 10. Yeah, it's true, department. What renowned professional wrestling promoter was seen beaming like a schoolgirl as he carried the bags of Dick Flair into the hotel the night before Slambury in Philadelphia? A, Tootsmont. B, Jack Pfeffer. C, Phil Zacco. D, Todd Gordon. I should note, Bruce put Jack Pfeiffer. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go to Todd's book. Wayne Keller was a writer responsible for Russell Torch and brightening the senior Heyman's day by printing my glowing report about their son. Report car about their son. When I first asked Eddie to get us into the sheets, Wade is the guy he contacted. Shortly thereafter, Wade and I started talking. He seemed trustworthy and I respected him based on what I'd seen and heard. Then he did something stupid. Open edition of the torch and was shocked to learn I was carrying Ric Flair's bags at WCW show at Philadelphia Civic Center. I called Wade as soon as I read it. Not only did I not carry anyone's bags, I began, but I wasn't even there. Someone I trust saw you. Wade, I'm not lying to you. Bruce Pritchard saw you himself. Bruce Mitchell. You said Bruce Pritchard. <laughs> Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Mitchell saw you himself. Bruce is another wrestling writer who apparently needed an eye exam. He never met me, so I don't know how he could be so certain he'd seen me. Maybe it was another short, bald Jewish guy. There's more than one in this city, or so I'm told. Yes, there is. I was, <laughs> I was so angry, I never lied the way. I always shot straight. For him to say I was lying was a big insult. I might not have answered all his questions in the past, but I never lied to him. That was all I needed. They were speaking to that motherfucker again. It bothers me to this day. I would not have gone to the civic center whether or not I was asked to carry a bag for someone. Paul always said not to go to other people's shows. He'll sink your credibility as a promoter. I understood that when he said it, and to this day, I've never been to a show I wasn't promoting or working on. A month after this debacle, we were doing a show in Philly and got word that Bruce Mitchell was coming. He must have gotten new glasses and ready to watch him wrestling. I was coming to the building with Sandman when we spotted Mitchell. Hack started yelling, Gordon, carry my bags, Gordon. Can't tell that guy anything. Okay, before we get to the meat of this, oh, Paul, Paul doesn't want him talking to any other promoters, huh? Interesting. He doesn't want him going to anyone else's shows, huh? <laughs> huh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, that said, what do you make of this? I believe Todd 
Yeah, I do too. Uh, so what the fuck is Bruce Mitchell talking about? I mean, who do you see? I mean, was Bruce was at Slamboree '94? I guess. Did he write about that? I don't know. But do you think he saw someone he thought was Todd Gordon, or do you think he made it up? I don't think he would make that up for nothing. So I don't I'm, I'm getting... either, especially 1994, Bruce. I guess maybe he saw somebody, and maybe somebody told him that's who that was. Oh, you think maybe he was like, oh, who's Karen Flair's bags? And someone jokingly said to him, Todd Gordon, and he took it seriously, maybe? It's possible. It doesn't make no sense. That's, that's the weird thing about it. Because, I mean, why lie about something like that, you know? And the thing with Wade is, <laughs> Wade is being so convinced that that was true. Without, you know, listening to Todd, you know, that tells you about how Wade felt about Bruce. Yeah, and I just pulled up the Slamboree issue. You know how they have the pay-per-view roundtable? Yeah. Oh, no, wait, I'm... <laughs> wait a second. This says 1999. Oh, no, it is the right one. There's just a typo or an OCR issue or something that turned into 1999. So here's Bruce's pay-per-view review which by the way he gave this show of all shows a three out of ten this show had too many holes in it and a lot of shoddy decision making on many levels i don't know why i didn't think to put this in the notes but whatever the job of management despite turmoil backstage is to make things look smooth make sure things make sense that wasn't accomplished the following is my laundry list of complaints barry Wyndham's return was not well thought out and he looked horrible flavors Wyndham was better than i expected but it didn't look like barry cared tully blanchard was not used well for instance why didn't Aaron anderson accompany him Terry Funk's patronizing of quote-unquote hardcore fans is getting nauseating. Is he running for office or trying to wrestle? The award ceremony was too long. Since when is the assassin one of the all-time greats? And why is your number one heel being honored? Who's the number one heel at the time? Who's he calling the number one heel that was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 94? Was it Harley? I guess so, yeah. As the as the top heels manager, I guess, is the or one of the top heels manager, I guess. Yeah. Um... Zabisco's going to get a push. Why didn't they play to his strength and give him an interview? Hurts Vader to have him do so many jobs. By their logic, Stinks would have wrestled rude. It was good to see Cactus not actually risk his life. Okay, so that does not sound like someone who's at the show. No. Not in no, the slightest. No. So what's the story? <sighs> Is it possible it's someone other than Bruce... And it, maybe someone else told Bruce and then told Wade, and it's just lost in his memory a little, maybe? It pissed Todd Gordon off, obviously. Yeah, it's stuck in his head, so I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like it's that kind of thing. I'm curious, like, I'm curious what the next Bruce column is after this, too. Because, like, what... <sighs> That that's really weird. Well, also we need to keep in mind then this is this first ran in the quiz. This is seven eight months later, in the first place that this is even becoming a thing. You know? Yeah. Do we? Or I mean, it's possible that Bruce told Wade at the time too, but it's very strange. Like I. I'm like, I'm sorry, but, like, 
any time. I mean, if we're going by it, uh, Todd remembering this right, because it seems like he's being fairly honest. Every newsletter writer in that era, if they were at the show, they made it clear. Right? Can you think of any time there is a newsletter writer attending a show and reviewing it where it is not made clear in their review that they're at the show? Well, Dave had some of those. That's Dave. <laughs> well, you say any newsletter writer, so no, but he's I, but the still, number one newsletter writer. But still, he says it somewhere, though. How many pay-per-views or anything are there that he went to where it's not somewhere in there that he's at the show? The thing is, is, I mean... It obviously happened, though. It, I mean, it obviously happened where Todd is told that. Yeah. I mean, where he calls Wade up and pissed off about it. I'd, I'd be curious but what Wade would say now, but I don't know if Wade would want to say anything about anything involving Bruce these days. Yeah, Wade probably don't remember. He might. I don't know. But, but I mean, obviously Todd did. Well, yeah. Wouldn't you? But... Maybe it's a story that got out there and it, it got attributed that Bruce was the one that saw it, but it, Bruce was told about it. I don't know. That's the only other thing I can think of. Well, I don't know. But interesting little uh, aside there, regardless. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash Between the Sheets.